0: Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to
1: blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk,
2: Black Talk. The Rockets would drop
3: Game 4 two nights later, setting the stage for a crucial Game 5 in New York. And then all eyes suddenly shifted far away from basketball.
1: On press row during the NBA Finals, they have the, the monitors right there. I look back, and I see this car chase going.
0: As we watch on live television, the white Bronco pursued by California law enforcement officials. And you see that
1: read it, says O.J. So I go in the huddle, and I'm like, yo, O.J.'s on a run.
4: Everybody's like, O.J.'s on a run. It's like, O.J.'s on a run. It's, like, a run. it's the middle of the Finals. The game became very secondary, and uh, it was the strangest
3: sports event of all time.
0: We'll uh, bring you up to date with all the continuing developments. Now let's go back to Marv Albert in the playoff game. Sparks protecting
1: it, getting it to Oakley. feeding
3: By the time everyone's attention was back on the game, the Knicks had gone up 3-2 in the series, putting them just one victory from the NBA title
4: context of white supremacy i am back in my childhood for a minute 1995 watching the finals charles remember back when charles oakley was welcome at madison square garden Woo! the good old days anyway uh gusty renegade in for another program uh hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date thursday December 10th, 2020. So I have been told. This is our book club third study session on Jeffrey Tubin's The Run of His Life. The People vs. OJ Simpson. Uh, We are picking up at the Bronco Chase, the infamous. Uh, I am changing things a little bit. I normally with the book club, we try to do approximately 90 minutes of audio that's generally the goal and that gives us 90 minutes to you know do discussion and uh explore what we've heard in the text with this book i feel like wow this is there are lots and lots of moments where we can all sit back and wow where was i when the bronco chase happened Where was I when the verdict happened? Where was I when the glove? I mean, lots of different moments. So uh, I think this is a great one to. And I totally forgot, as I said, I had not watched the People vs. OJ Simpson prior to us doing this book study session. Uh, We talked about it way back in 2016. I said I wasn't watching it. I'd never been interested in the OJ Simpson case. I was probably still in my feelings from my childhood and missing out on game five and the Knicks' momentary triumph. Uh, But man, (laughs) I said normally what we would do if we read a book where there is a corresponding film, we would, you know, read the book Watch the movie, see where the differences are and all that. That's what we did with White Dog. We've had other projects. American Sniper. Uh, There have been other projects as well. Um, Man, the flipping 10-part television series. Like, the people who've seen that as we are reading, like, to just note, like, the differences. Basically, where we are in the book right now is the first episode. The second episode is basically the Bronco chase. So that's today. If you watch the TV series, you would walk away thinking OJ Simpson is definitely without a doubt guilty and not a cool person. Uh, the prosecution was pretty slimy uh, in playing. What's what's my favorite metaphor? They use the, the racial stink bombs and other dirty tricks to get this no count or rental James off the charge. Uh, you would not think uh, that someone has a credible case for saying, "Hey, this deserved an acquittal." You would think, "Oh man, they practiced sexism and poor Marcia Clark and that no count, dirty rotten O.J. Simpson." Like I think that's the general impression you would be left with. Not, woo, that lots of, yeah we haven't got to the man there's something to be said about that i think some folks said people black people most black people most white people everybody thinks oj simpson is guilty now 1995 the majority of black people thought he was not guilty some folks i think thomas in new york is, and others asked how did that change so drastically in the 25 years since the trial White people are master deceivers. They are master storytellers and projects like uh, the television series, uh, the FX series, projects like that. They even have the scene uh, from the first episode they have O.J. Simpson before he's arrested and he's standing at the casket of Nicole Brown Simpson and they have the sinister music in the background and even his attorney Robert Shapiro is there and he turn, he can't even look like oh god ghastly the oh. <laughs> like, O.J. Uh, but that's how you end up having people it's lots to it but I mean that is a major component uh, when you have television programs like that and even books like this Tubin has taken the perspective O.J. is guilty. He had the, the sentence last week from the O.J. autobiography. O.J., guilty as charged. I'm concerned about my image. I like to look great and have nice house and all that good stuff talking about back when he was in the NFL. But, yeah, white people have lots of ways where they can convince you. Oh, yeah, this person is definitely guilty and a rotten no count scoundrel. We will get started. This is the infamous Bronco Chase. Everybody can think back. Where were you June 1994? Were you watching the the finals? Were you a child? What were you doing? This is like an evening time thing. So if you can recall, what were you doing during the Bronco Chase? We will get started. This is Jeffrey Tubin, Zoom bomber number one of 2020. Jeffrey Tubin's The Run of His Life. The People vs. O.J. Simpson. Audio segment one.
5: Chapter five. Mr. Simpson has not appeared. At 8.30 a.m. on Friday as planned, Lang reached Shapiro at home. He and Van Adder had worked nearly all night to prepare the paperwork for the arrest, and Lang was tired and in no mood for a long conversation. He told Shapiro that the police had an arrest warrant charging O.J. Simpson with a double homicide, with special circumstances of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman. Under California law, special circumstances refers to a list of designated aggravating factors that change the legal landscape of a murder case. The special circumstance charged against Simpson was a double homicide. Two implications jumped out immediately at Shapiro. First, the charge made Simpson eligible for the death penalty. The final decision on whether the prosecution would seek execution would come later. Second, California law does not allow for bail in special circumstances cases, so Shapiro knew immediately that O.J. Simpson was going to jail on June 17th and that he would remain there for the duration of his trial, many months at the least. The conversation between the two men was polite, and each heard what he wanted to hear. Lang did not view the call as an invitation to negotiate. He knew that it should take less than an hour for Simpson to travel from his home in Brentwood to Parker Center. He told Shapiro that Simpson had two and a half hours to surrender, that is, until 11 a.m. Shapiro saw Lang's comments as more of a request than a command. The lawyer mentioned some concerns about his client's mental state—he might be suicidal—but said that he would do his best to bring Simpson in on time. The two men agreed to stay in touch as the day progressed. When he received the call from Lang, Robert Shapiro had been O.J. Simpson's lawyer for less than 72 hours. He had been hired in a way that revealed much about his client, himself, and the case as a whole. It was Howard Weitzman, of course, who had represented Simpson when he returned from Chicago, and went on to be interviewed by the police on Monday, June 13th word that Simpson had given a statement to the police leaked out that evening, and the news prompted a strong reaction in wealthy television executive Roger King, who was monitoring events from New Jersey. King, the chairman of King World, which syndicates Oprah and Wheel of Fortune, among other television shows, was a sometime resident of Los Angeles, and knew Simpson from playing the occasional round of golf with him. Appalled that Weitzman had allowed Simpson to be questioned by the police, King called O.J. and told him so, and recommended that Simpson find a new lawyer. "'I'll get you Bob Shapiro,' King promised. He then tracked Shapiro down to where he was having dinner at the House of Blues, a popular Hollywood night spot, and asked him to take the case. Shapiro agreed." He was hired by Simpson on Tuesday and entered the case officially on Wednesday. What makes this transaction curious is that none of the participants really knew one another. O.J. and Roger King saw each other rarely, but King was the kind of man Simpson admired. O.J. believed King when he said that Weitzman had let him down. This also allowed Simpson to blame someone else for his own decision to speak to the police. More remarkably, King had never even spoken to Shapiro before he reached him at the House of Blues. The entrepreneur couldn't name a single client the lawyer had represented, but he had some general sense of Shapiro as a skilled defender of celebrities. For his part, Shapiro did not hesitate before saying he wanted the case. And to Simpson, as always, image was everything. Robert Shapiro became his lawyer because he fit the image of a smart lawyer in the eyes of a fellow who fit O.J.'s image of a smart guy. The Shapiro for Weitzman exchange also provided grist for these two lawyers' long-standing feud, one that was based largely, it seems, on their similarity to one another. Shapiro took over the case on Tuesday, June 14th, and the following morning Weitzman issued a public statement saying that he had resigned from the case because of his friendship with O.J. and his obligations to other clients. Shapiro delighted in telling friends that Weitzman's statement was a lie and that he had in fact been fired. The truth probably lies somewhere between the two versions. Along the lines of a job departure once described by Casey Stengel, We call it discharged because there is no question I had to leave. Shapiro had a very busy first week, organizing his initial efforts with Simpson's medical and legal well-being in mind. Simpson told Shapiro that he was innocent. But lawyers are used to hearing this sort of thing from clients, especially at the beginning of a case. The first thing Shapiro did was arrange for Simpson to take a polygraph examination, which is something many criminal defense lawyers do. These tests are generally inadmissible in court, but lawyers often use them to force their clients to come clean, face reality, and make the best deal they can. Shapiro called his friend F. Lee Bailey, who is a national authority on polygraphs, for a recommendation on which expert to use. Bailey suggested Edward Gelb, who ran a firm called Intercept, out of a set of nondescript offices on Wilshire Boulevard. Bailey knew Gelb because they had hosted a short-lived television series together in 1983 called Lie Detector. The program showcased Gelb and Bailey examining UFO sighters and other fringe figures to determine whether they were telling the truth. Gelb was out of town, so the test was administered by his top deputy, Dennis Nellany. Simpson took what is known as a zone of comparison polygraph examination, which measured three of his physiological responses to questions—heart rate, breathing, and the electrical sensitivity of his skin. Lie detectors do not, strictly speaking, detect lies— Rather, the examiner interprets the subject's responses on a sliding scale in which negative numbers indicated deception and positive numbers truthfulness. According to the test Nellany administered, any score higher than plus six meant that Simpson was telling the truth. Any number lower than minus six meant he was lying. A score between plus six and minus six would be ambiguous. Simpson scored a minus 24, total failure. The score was so catastrophic that some people around Simpson tried to attribute it to his distressed emotional state at the time of the examination. Bailey, in particular, tried to say that Simpson was so upset that the result should not be seen as dispositive. Nellany, however, regarded the polygraph as conclusive evidence of Simpson's guilt in the murders, and he reported that view to Shapiro. Shapiro weighed his options, which included an insanity defense. To that end, he called in another expert on Wednesday, June 15th, one who could serve two purposes. As a respected psychiatrist in a private practice in Beverly Hills, Saul Fairstein could examine O.J. and prescribe medication. But Fairstein also had a national reputation as an expert witness in the field of forensic psychiatry. Shapiro thus viewed him as a hedge in case Simpson wanted to raise a diminished capacity defense to the murders. Fairstein went to the house on Rockingham and joined Simpson on the couch in the living room. Simpson talked and talked, about himself. The press was out to get him now. His image would never recover. It was all so unfair. What struck Fairstein most were the gaps in Simpson's narrative, there was no sadness for the loss of the mother of his children, no concern for his children's future, no empathy for Nicole. Simpson worried only about himself. His reactions were inconsistent with what Fairstein would expect from an unjustly accused man. Yet Simpson was obviously not insane in any legal sense. So with Nellanie's examination, Fairstein's report offered Shapiro no help in constructing a defense. Fairstein returned to see Simpson many times over the next two months to continue his course of psychiatric treatment. Like Shapiro, Fairstein was convinced early on of Simpson's guilt in the murders. On that same Wednesday, June 15th, which was also the day of the viewing of Nicole's body at a funeral home, Shapiro asked an internist, Robert Huizinga, to give O.J. a detailed physical examination Shapiro wanted Huizinga to check on Simpson's medical condition, but he also asked the doctor to document with photographs any bruises or abrasions on Simpson's body at that point, which was less than three days after the killings. His lack of any major injuries would become a central part of his defense at trial. Also, in those first two days on the job, Shapiro had recruited two of the nation's leading forensic experts to Simpson's team, Henry Lee, the chief police scientist for the state of Connecticut, and Michael Bodden, the former chief medical examiner of New York City. By Thursday, June 16th, both Lee and Bodden had arrived in Los Angeles. In spite of all the activity, Shapiro found the time to make a characteristic gesture. On the night of June 16th, he took Bodden to a glamorous Hollywood screening of the Jack Nicholson movie, Wolf, which was opening the next day. Detective Lang's call on Friday morning, June 17th, presented Shapiro with a dilemma. What he could have done, indeed should have done, was simple. Make a direct effort to locate Simpson, and then take him into Parker Center, and thereby make the 11 a.m. deadline with ease. But the situation was more complicated than Lang knew when he made the call, for Simpson was not at home at Brentwood, as the police investigating his case had assumed. On Thursday, June 16th, following Nicole's funeral earlier in the day, Simpson had participated in an elaborate ruse to convince the vast media encampment outside his home that he had, in fact, returned to Rockingham. The person who was actually hustled into the property with a jacket over his head was his old friend, Al A.C. Cowlings. Simpson had been taken to his friend Robert Kardashian's home in Encino, in the San Fernando Valley. Remarkably, this operation was engineered by an off-duty LAPD sergeant, Dennis Sebenik, who was moonlighting as a security guard for the murder suspect. Sebenik did not, of course, surprise his colleagues on the force of the whereabouts of their prey. This kind of solicitude typified Simpson's relationship with the LAPD. Shapiro, therefore, had to retrieve Simpson from Encino, which was slightly farther from downtown than Brentwood. In his years of dealing with celebrity clients, Shapiro had learned the value of deference. He did not, for example, telephone ahead to Kardashian's place and tell O.J. to get ready to leave. Defending his actions later, Shapiro said that he had acted this gingerly because he feared Simpson might harm himself if he were dealt with more harshly. Shapiro also knew that Simpson's friends had just orchestrated Howard Weitzman's departure, in part because they thought he had been insufficiently zealous in protecting Simpson's interests. Shapiro did not want to meet the same fate. If the choice was between offending the LAPD or his client... Shapiro would take his chances with the cops. While still at home, Shapiro called Fairstein, the psychiatrist, and asked him to meet him at Kardashian's house. Together, they would break the news to O.J. At nine thirty a.m., Shapiro arrived at Kardashian's vast white villa, a garish affair resembling a Tehran bordello, all marble and mirrors. Simpson, who had been sedated, was still in the first-floor bedroom he was using during his stay. His girlfriend, Paula Barbieri, was with him. She had been at his side for much of the week. After Simpson's criminal trial and a deposition in the victim's civil case against O.J., Barbieri testified that she had left a telephone message breaking off her relationship with Simpson on the morning of the murders, June 12th but her actions the following week seem inconsistent with the notion that she was trying to end their affair. Shapiro and Kardashian woke OJ and told him that they would be taking him to Parker Center to surrender. Again, they did not force him to leave. Instead, they explained that Dr. suzenga and Fairstein were on their way to examine him before they had to leave for jail. Within moments, the house was buzzing with people. First, Fairstein arrived, followed by Husenga, who was accompanied by an entourage of assistants. Then came Henry Lee and Michael Boden, Kardashian's girlfriend, Denise Shakarian Haliki, who also lived at the house, suggested that Al Cowlings be called, and he was summoned to join the group as well. Husenga wanted to evaluate some swollen lymph nodes he had noticed in his initial examination of Simpson— particularly because O.J. had a family history of cancer. Later tests showed no malignancy. In addition, incredibly, Huizangat took the time to do some additional examinations to bolster Simpson's defense, taking more photographs to demonstrate that Simpson had no significant wounds. Granted the privilege of being allowed to surrender, Simpson was missing his deadline so that he could, in effect, conduct his defense. Shapiro was on the phone every 15 minutes to the LAPD, stroking, consoling, explaining that these things take time and that Simpson would be on his way shortly. Patiently, but with some indignation, Shapiro gave a series of increasingly high-level officers the same message. "'I have always had a good relationship with the police department. "'I have always kept my word. "'You have to trust me here.' I will be there when I say I can be there. After all, Shapiro told the cops, what difference did it make if Simpson surrendered at 11 a.m. or 1 p.m.? Simpson, too, had his demands. In the hour or so after Shapiro's arrival, the entire group gathered in a large, second-floor study just off the master bedroom. When Weezenga finished taking blood and hair samples there, O.J. said he wanted to take a shower then talked to his mother and his children. Simpson, Barbieri, and Cowlings went back down to O.J.'s bedroom on the first floor. When he arrived, Fairstein had wanted to keep a close eye on Simpson to make sure he wouldn't harm himself. But he had no qualms about Cowlings monitoring O.J. The psychiatrist assumed that Cowlings, too, would make sure Simpson remained safe. Finally, Van Adder and Lang grew fed up, waiting for the lawyer to drive the defendant to Parker Center. They had been reaching Shapiro on his cellular phone, so they did not even know where he and Simpson were. Marcia Clark, who was beginning the grand jury proceedings against Simpson that day, took a break from those labors to have her own indignant conversation with Shapiro. At around noon, the detectives said they would wait no longer for Simpson to surrender. They wanted to send a squad car to pick him up. As always, the LAPD was concerned about the media. A news conference had been scheduled for noon, and now that had to be put off. It was just after noon when Shapiro put Fairstein on the phone with an LAPD commander. In an effort to explain the reasons for the delay. There is a warrant for this man's arrest, the commander said, and we have to come get him. Now, where are you? Fairstein stalled. I don't think I'm at liberty to tell you where we are. I don't think you understand, Doctor. There are laws relating to aiding and abetting fugitives. Now tell me where you are. Just a minute, Fairstein said, and then handed the phone to Shapiro, who finally agreed to provide Kardashian's address. Ever the negotiator, Shapiro secured the commander's promise that Shapiro and Fairstein could accompany Simpson on his trip downtown. Moments later, at about 12.10 p.m., a squad car arrived at Kardashian's, and a police helicopter began circling overhead. Shapiro and Fairstein answered the door. Even then, after all the delays, the lawyer had another request. Shapiro and his professional colleagues, Fairstein, Wiesenga, Lee, Bodden, and Kardashian, had been gathered upstairs. O.J. was in a back bedroom talking with Barbieri and Cowlings. Shapiro asked the officers if Fairstein, the psychiatrist, could break the news to O.J. that the police had arrived. Simpson had not even been told that the police were coming to get him. The officers, who at that point had every right to barge in and take Simpson away, agreed. Fairstein walked back to the bedroom where O.J. and A.C. were talking. A moment later, Fairstein returned, alone. He must be somewhere else, Fairstein told the officers. One at a time, the people in the house fanned out. A few walked upstairs. With each passing second, the pace of everyone's steps increased. O.J. wasn't upstairs. Chests constricted. There was a brief ray of hope when they realized they had not checked the garage. Maybe O.J. went to get something out of the trunk of his car. But there was no one in the garage. Panic. They talked to Otto Kino Jenkins, Bob Shapiro's chauffeur. He hadn't seen O.J. And then the realization dawned on them that no one had seen Barbieri or Cowlings either. No one leaves, one officer said, when he realized what had happened. This is a crime scene. As he had done when the officers came for him in 1989 for beating Nicole, so he did when they came for him in 1994 for killing her. O.J. Simpson disappeared. The LAPD's considerable press apparatus had put out the word early in the morning, there would be an announcement regarding the Simpson case at noon. Reporters drifted into Parker Center over the course of the morning and then learned that the briefing had been delayed. This was no great surprise because most such events start late. Then there was a bomb scare at police headquarters and the media people were told they could vacate the building if they wanted. No one left. Media machismo. At one fifty three p.m., the reporters got the two-minute warning. The briefing was about to begin. Commander David Gascone was the chief spokesman for the LAPD. With his neat black hair, obligatory mustache, and tight-fitting uniform, Gascone cut a typical figure for the department he represented. He was also fairly relaxed and approachable, and he had a good rapport with most of the reporters who covered the LAPD. They noticed, when he stepped to the podium that he looked... different. He seemed shaken, and his voice quavered slightly. ''Okay, I have an official announcement from the Los Angeles Police Department,'' Gascon said. ''This morning,'' Gascon said, his voice unsteady. ''Detectives from the Los Angeles Police Department,'' After an exhaustive investigation, which included interviews with dozens of witnesses, a thorough examination and analysis of the physical evidence both here and in Chicago, sought and obtained a warrant for the arrest of O.J. Simpson, charging him with the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Lyle Goldman. Mr. Simpson, in agreement with his attorney, was scheduled to surrender this morning to the Los Angeles Police Department. Initially, that was 11 a.m. It then became 11.45. Mr. Simpson has not appeared. The room stirred. The Los Angeles Police Department right now is actively searching for Mr. Simpson. An experienced group of reporters were gathered in that room, and yet none of them could ever recall having heard the sound they issued at that moment. A sort of collective gasp and then one journalist, name lost to history, let out a long and very astonished whistle. Mr. Simpson is out there somewhere, Gascon said, and we will find him. Shortly after it became clear that Simpson and Cowlings were really gone, Kardashian materialized in the foyer of his house with an envelope that contained a letter. Shapiro and Fairstein sat on the bottom step of the winding marble staircase and read it. They agreed that it seemed like a suicide note written by O.J. Meanwhile, the cops asked the assembled group where they thought Simpson had gone. Someone suggested Nicole's grave, near her parents' home in Orange County. Someone else said the Los Angeles Coliseum, site of O.J.'s greatest moments of football glory at USC. He might kill himself in the end zone, Fairstein said. In fact, no one had any idea where he was. After Shapiro and Kardashian spoke to the officers on the scene and recounted the events of the morning to their satisfaction, the two men left for Shapiro's office in Century City. They also determined that Paula Barbieri had left the house shortly before O.J. and A.C., but not with them. The two Bobs, as they were sometimes known, asked the officers if Fairstein could leave with them but the police weren't yet finished talking to the psychiatrist. Though the letter was clearly important evidence of Simpson's state of mind and his possible plans, Kardashian took it with him rather than mentioning it, much less giving it to the police, who were looking for O.J. From the moment Simpson vanished, Robert Shapiro focused on his top priority, Robert Shapiro. He knew immediately how furious the police and prosecutors were about Simpson's disappearance, and he knew they would hold him responsible. Shapiro had embarrassed them in front of the entire country. Worse, Shapiro didn't like what the cops were insinuating about his role in Simpson's flight. Even though Shapiro had committed no crime in harboring Simpson for the morning, the mere fact that he might be investigated worried him. Shapiro decided he was finished dealing with underlings, Lang, Clark, and the like. Shapiro decided to call the district attorney himself, Gil Garcetti. Everything had been shaping up so well for Gil Garcetti. Elected overwhelmingly in 1992, he had an ideal ethnic and political resume. The son of Mexican immigrants and the grandson of an Italian the 53-year-old politician, had spent his entire professional career in the DA's office. He was, in fact, a neighbor of O.J.'s in Brentwood, thanks not to his civil service earnings, but rather to the wherewithal of his wealthy wife. Even his steely gray hair came with an uplifting tail. It had changed color after Garcetti underwent chemotherapy in a successful battle with lymphoma in 1980. As a tough-on-crime prosecutor and yet a Democrat, he had a promising political future. One problem hovered. His office's remarkable record of futility in high-profile cases. The DA had failed to obtain convictions against the proprietors of the McMartin Preschool in a lengthy child abuse case, against several motion picture industry figures in connection with the deaths of two people on the set of Twilight Zone the movie against the Menendez brothers for killing their parents, and most notoriously, against the police officers who beat Rodney King, acquittals that set off the riots of 1992. As Garcetti would frequently and correctly point out over the course of the Simpson case, evaluating an office of nearly a thousand prosecutors on the basis of how they did in a few big ones was pretty unfair. Still, in his campaign against his predecessor, Ira Reiner, Garcetti himself hadn't hesitated to play the the can't-win-the-big-one card. These murders presented Garcetti with a case that was likely to dwarf the other big ones in media attention. Suddenly, though, he had a bigger problem than trying to convict O.J. Simpson. He couldn't even find the guy. So Garcetti focused on his top priority... Gil Garcetti. When Shapiro got on the phone with the DA, the defense attorney began reciting a version of the same speech he had been giving the cops all day. You know me, Gil. I don't pull this kind of stuff. I arranged Eric Menendez's surrender from Israel. Name-dropping even at a time like this, Shapiro then became nearly unhinged, practically weeping over the phone. I didn't know he would run, Gil. You have to believe me. The two men were old acquaintances. Shapiro had even contributed $5,000 to Garcetti's campaign. But at this moment, Garcetti addressed Shapiro with barely controlled rage. Just get him in here, Bob. That's all we're thinking about now. At 3 o'clock p.m., just after he got off the phone with Shapiro, Garcetti went to give his own press conference on the 18th floor of the criminal court's building. Flanked by Marsha Clark and David Kahn, Garcetti looked even more distraught than Gascone had in his briefing an hour earlier. He looked right at the cameras, which were broadcasting his words live. I want to say something to the entire community, Garcetti said. If you in any way are assisting Mr. Simpson in avoiding justice, Mr. Simpson is a fugitive of justice right now. His feelings were garbling his usually adequate syntax. And if you assist him in any way, you are committing a felony. Think about it, and I guarantee you that if there is evidence establishing that you've assisted Mr. Simpson in any way to avoid his arrest, you will be prosecuted as a felon. Now, Garcetti added, stumbling a bit, you can tell that I am a little upset, and I am upset. This is a very serious case. Many of us, perhaps, had empathy to some extent. We saw, perhaps, the falling of an American hero. To some extent, I viewed Mr. Simpson in the same way. But let's remember that we have two innocent people who have been brutally killed. It's a serious case. We will continue to treat it seriously. Through more than a half hour of hostile questions, Garcetti had nothing but polite things to say about the LAPD. But his frustration did surface toward the end. Rewording a question that had already been asked approximately twenty times at the press conference, one reporter ventured The question so many people are asking, and perhaps this needs to be addressed to the LAPD, and it already has, is how can this possibly happen? The entire world is focused on this man. Is there any way to answer that? I can't, Garcetti said simply. ''Surely you're wondering that yourself, aren't we all?'' said the district attorney. Garcetti's press conference did nothing to ease Shapiro's anxiety. He knew he remained the villain in the minds of the Los Angeles law enforcement establishment. So Simpson's lawyer decided, in effect, to take his case to the public. He told reporters that he would be making a statement about the day's events at 5 o'clock p.m., which was barely an hour after Garcetti's briefing ended. Unlike every other event that had been planned for June 17th, this press conference started right on time. Robert Shapiro was anxious to go. He stepped to a podium in a makeshift briefing room on the ground floor of his Century City office building and spoke calmly and methodically, with no notes. Shapiro, too, started with a plea to the camera, but he was aiming for an audience of one. "'For the sake of your children,' he told O.J., "'please surrender immediately. Surrender to any law enforcement official at any police station, but please do it immediately.' There was an odd calm about Shapiro, a lack of effect to his presentation. For all the turmoil of the day and the sheer strangeness of all the occurrences— He spoke without passion or even inflection. In retrospect, his agenda at the press conference appears utterly transparent. Whatever else had happened today, this mess was not going to drag him down with it. Shapiro began by summarizing the day's events. The early morning call from the detectives, his journey to Kardashian's home, his passing the news of the arrest warrant to Simpson, and the defendant's sudden disappearance. I have on numerous occasions in the past 25 years made similar arrangements with the Los Angeles Police Department and the District Attorney's Office and Mr. Garcetti. All of them have always kept their word to me and I have always kept my word to them. In fact, I arranged the surrender of Eric Menendez from Israel on a similar basis. We are all shocked by this sudden turn of events. It was an extraordinary tale and the reporters, along with the national television audience, listened with rapt attention. Shapiro's account was also highly incriminating of his client. Simpson's actions, as described by Shapiro, did not seem to be those of an innocent man. In light of Simpson's escape, Shapiro might have had an obligation to recount this story to the police, but the lawyer was certainly under no obligation to share it with the public at large. "'Indeed, by some reckonings, "'much of what had gone on that morning at Kardashian's house "'may have been protected by the attorney-client privilege, "'a privilege that only Simpson had the right to waive. "'Yet Shapiro told all. "'He had hung his client out to dry in order to save himself. "'Yet Shapiro's statement was only the beginning "'of the proceedings at this press conference. "'Now,' Shapiro continued, I would like to introduce to you Mr. Robert Kardashian, who is one of Mr. Simpson's closest and dearest friends, who will read a letter that O.J. Simpson wrote in his handwriting today. Thank you. He became one of the most familiar, if least known, figures in the Simpson saga. Loyal friend Robert Kardashian, the one with the white stripe in his hair. Heir to a meat-packing fortune in Los Angeles, Kardashian attended USC a couple of years before Simpson and served there as the student manager of the football team, the prototypical hanger-on position. He graduated from law school but quickly dropped practice for the business world. He started a music magazine and sold his share for $3 million in 1979. At the time of the murders, he was running Movie Tunes, a company that played music in movie theaters between shows. For many years, Simpson and Kardashian shared lively and similar social lives. In 1978, Kardashian met his future wife, Kristen, when she was 17 and he 34. Kardashian had been there the previous year when O.J., then 30, met Nicole Brown, then 18. Bob and Kristen Kardashian would ultimately have four children, Courtney, Kimberly, Chloe, and Robert Jr., and they often joined OJ and Nicole for vacations. The two couples separated around the same time, too, and Kardashian's divorce papers suggest that his marriage was beset by some of the same problems as OJ and Nicole's. During the divorce, Kristen Kardashian obtained a restraining order that barred either party from molesting, attacking, striking, threatening, sexually assaulting, battering, or otherwise disturbing the peace of the other party. Strangely, Kardashian seemed to have an attack of poverty during his divorce. In an affidavit filed on July 11, 1991, he wrote that he had been terminated from his job the previous December. I am now unemployed and have no income, the document stated. Yet at the time of the murders, Kardashian was living in the vast house in Encino, and from the moment Simpson was arrested, Kardashian suspended all other work, reactivated his law license, and toiled full-time on O.J.'s defense for more than a year. His Rolls-Royce became a fixture at the county jail. His devotion to Simpson had a desperate, frantic quality. In September 1994, he placed a full-page advertisement in Hits magazine, a trade publication, bearing the words, Justice for the Juice. In the ad, Kardashian used the name of Movie Tunes executive, Vice President, Michael Amin, without Amin's permission. Amin promptly quit, telling the Hollywood reporter, Robert's commitment to this case has overwhelmed every other corner of his life. Kardashian's divorce from Kristen pained him, especially because she left him for Bruce Jenner, the former Olympic decathlon champion. Jenner and Kristen later married, and at the time of the murders, they were starring in a frequently played infomercial for a thigh-exercising device. According to a close associate of Kardashian's, it bothered him that she was on TV all the time with the Thigh Master. This case was his way to step over them this was better than infomercials head bowed with no words of introduction or explanation Kardashian followed Shapiro to the podium at the June 17th press conference and began speaking into the nest of microphones his audience surely dwarfed that of any infomercial this letter was written by OJ today Kardashian said actually it was not the letter was headed 61594, two days earlier. Then Kardashian began reading. To whom it may concern. Suicide notes vary. Some tell the truth, some don't. Some reflect a genuine intention to commit the deed, some merely display a taste for melodrama. There is, of course, no way to tell for sure what O.J. Simpson truly intended to do when he composed the letter that Robert Kardashian read to the world on the afternoon of June 17, 1994. It is safe to say, however, that Simpson intended his letter to be understood as a suicide note and as a public last will and testament. As such, it provides both intentional and unintentional clues to the nature of its author— and in particular to the banality, self-pity, and narcissism that are the touchstones of his character. First, everyone understand, nothing to do with Nicole's murder. I loved her, always have, and always will. If we had a problem, it's because I loved her so much. Recently, we came to the understanding that, for now, we weren't right for each other, at least for now. Despite our love, we were different and that's why we mutually agreed to go our separate ways. Kardashian edited as he went along, first by omitting the date at the top of the letter. Shapiro had suggested that Simpson had given this and two other letters to Kardashian right after he wrote them. But if O.J. had actually written them two days earlier, Kardashian might have had a clue that Simpson was contemplating not surrendering. By leaving out the date... Kardashian avoided uncomfortable questions about his own role in O.J.'s disappearance. Kardashian also began his recitation by quoting the letter as saying, First, everyone understand, I had nothing to do with Nicole's murder. The text illustrates that Simpson, in fact, omitted these two important words. The suicide note showed that Simpson was a terrible writer and speller so it is difficult to draw any conclusions from his errors except about his near illiteracy. However, it is tempting to infer some psychological significance from Simpson's failure to render correctly this most important sentence of his letter. Most newspapers that printed excerpts of the letter cleaned up the grammar and spelling, thereby leaving the impression that Simpson was more literate than he was. Two days earlier, standing before Nicole's body at the O'Connor Mortuary in Laguna Beach, her mother, Juditha, had asked O.J. whether he had anything to do with Nicole's death. Staring at Nicole's corpse as he answered, Simpson used words similar to those in this note. I loved her, O.J. told Nicole's mother. I loved her too much. From both the letter and the remark it seemed that O.J. believed his love for Nicole was in some way excessive. It was tough splitting for a second time, but we both knew it was for the best. Inside, I had no doubt that in the future we would be closest friend or more. Unlike what's been in the press, Nicole and I had a great relationship for most of our lives together. Like all long-term relationships, we had a few downs and ups. I took the heat New Year's Eve 1989 because... That was what I was supposed to do. I did not plea no contest for any other reason but to protect our privacy and was advised it would end the press hype. Kardashian rendered that last sentence in a considerably more grammatical way than Simpson wrote it. I don't want to belabor knocking the press, but I can't believe what's being said. Most of it is totally made up. I know you have a job to do, but as a last wish, please, please... Please leave my children in peace. Their lives will be tough enough. Leaving aside the question of whether a criminal conviction for spousal abuse and Nicole's repeated pleas to 911 qualified as something more than a few downs and ups, it is Simpson's self-obsession that is so striking here. He not only denies responsibility for beating Nicole, but congratulates himself for accepting the blame for it. Ironically, there was, in fact, very little press hype about the 1989 beating incident. Notwithstanding his criminal conviction, Simpson received generally glowing press coverage from 1989 until even the week after the murders. That O.J. should have been so wounded by what little criticism there was again demonstrates his vast self-regard. I want to send my love and thanks to all my friends, I'm sorry I can't name every one of you, especially A.C., man. Thanks for being in my life. The support and friendship I received from so many Wayne Hughes, Louis Marx, Frank Olson, Mark Packer, Bender, Bobby Kardashian. I wish we had spent more time together in recent years. Hughes is a USC benefactor and the owner of a chain of private warehouse facilities. Marks is a private investor who sold off his father's toy company at great profit. Olsen is the longtime chief executive officer of Hertz. Packer is a New York-based restaurateur. Bobby Bender is a garment industry executive in New York. As for Kardashian, the letter suggests that even Simpson was astonished by the extent and intensity of his friend's sycophancy. My golfing buddy, Haas. Alan Austin, Mike, Craig, Bender, Wyler, Sandy, Jay, Donnie Sofer. Thanks for the fun. The first four mentioned were all playing partners of O.J.'s at the Riviera Country Club, near Simpson's home in Brentwood. Haas is Bob Hoskins, a Los Angeles-based businessman. Alan Austin ran a women's wear boutique in Beverly Hills for many years. Mike Melchiori was a semi-retired printing executive, He died of a heart attack in April 1996. And Craig Baumgarten, a former senior executive at Columbia Pictures, is now an independent movie producer. Weiler is Bender's partner in the garment business. Sandy Jay and Don Soffer, correct spelling, were Simpson's East Coast golfing companions. It is worth noting, given the way his case unfolded, that in this list of O.J.'s 15 best friends... All of them, except Cowlings, are wealthy, middle-aged, white men. All my teammates over the years, Reggie, you were the soul of my pro career. Ahmaud, I never stop being proud of you. Marcus, you got a great lady in Catherine, don't mess it up. Bobby Chandler, thanks for always being there. When he turned to his fellow athletes, the style of the letter shifted to that of a high school yearbook. Reggie McKenzie was Simpson's top blocker on the Buffalo Bills. Ahmad Rashad played wide receiver for the Bills and later the Minnesota Vikings and was O.J.'s colleague and sometime rival at NBC Sports. Marcus Allen, who won the Heisman as a running back 13 years after Simpson at USC, had a significant professional career with the Raiders and Kansas City Chiefs. Chandler, a teammate of O.J.'s at USC, played for the Raiders in the NFL. He would die of cancer while O.J. was in jail during his trial. The reference to Allen was especially intriguing. Marcus Allen was in some ways O.J.'s protege, the man who came closest to equaling his feats at USC and in the professional ranks. Not surprisingly, their relationship generated tensions, which were exacerbated by Allen's on-and-off affair with Nicole. Some of O.J. and Nicole's friends believe that it was jealousy about Alan in particular that ultimately drove Simpson to murder her. O.J. apparently knew about this affair, and at least forgave Alan for it, allowing Marcus and Catherine, the correct spelling, to marry in his home on Rockingham in 1993. But the instruction to Alan about his marriage, don't mess it up, may be a subtle reminder that O.J.'s resentments against him lingered. "'Skip and Kathy, I love you guys. Without you, I never would have made it this far. "'Marguerite, thanks for those early years. We had some fun. "'Paula, what can I say? You are special. I'm sorry we're not going to have our chance. "'God brought you to me. I now see as I leave. You'll be in my thoughts.' Skip Taft was O.J.'s business manager. Kathy Randa, his secretary— Marguerite, his first wife, and the mother of Jason, Arnell, and Aaron, the child who drowned in the pool at Rockingham. Barbieri was, of course, his principal, but far from exclusive girlfriend during the period after his separation from Nicole. The only women mentioned in the suicide note are secretaries, wives, and girlfriends, an apt summary of O.J.'s view of the place of women in the world. By the end, the letter came to resemble the speech Simpson gave on August 3, 1985, upon his induction to the Professional Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio. O.J. thanked many of the same people, in much the same style. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Skip Taft and Kathy Randa. Notwithstanding the macabre circumstances, Simpson seems to have composed his suicide note in the manner of the celebrity intent upon allowing a few friends to share in his reflected glory. I think of my life and I feel I've done most of the right things. So why do I end up like this? I can't go on, no matter what the outcome people will look and point. I can't take that. I can't subject my children to that. This way they can move on and go on with their lives. Please, if I've done anything worthwhile in my life, let my kids live in peace from you. Press. Simpson demonstrated a certain prescience here. Even though he was ultimately acquitted, he did become a pariah. People do look and point. But what is peculiar is how he converted his own inability to cope with the unpopularity into a problem for his children. I can't subject my children to that. Sidney and Justin had lost their mother. A more rational and generous reaction might have been to hold them close and assure them that they were not going to lose their father, too. Simpson's ego compelled him to imagine that his own problems with the public would torture his children, when, of course, it was he, not they, who could not abide the humiliation. I have a good life, and I'm proud of how I lived, "'My mama taught me to do unto other. "'I treated people the way I wanted to be treated. "'I've always tried to be up and helpful. "'So why is this happening? "'I'm sorry for the Goldman family. "'I know how much it hurts. "'Nicole and I had a good life together. "'All this press talk about a rocky relationship "'was no more than what every long-term relationship experiences all her friends will confirm that i've been totally loving and understanding of what she's been going through at times i felt like a battered husband or boyfriend but i loved her made that clear to everyone and would take whatever to make us work though it is theoretically possible that the 5 foot 5 inch 129 pound nicole battered her husband a 6 foot 2 inch 210 pound football player There is apparently no record of O.J.'s seeking medical assistance because of her physical abuse. Don't feel sorry for me. I've had a great life, made great friends. Please think of the real O.J. and not this lost person. Thank you for making my life special, and I hope I help yours. Peace and love, O.J. Inside the O in his name, Simpson scrawled a happy face, a flourish that is almost too perverse to contemplate. For all that the content of the letter reveals of its author, what is perhaps most striking is something that is absent from it. Simpson portrays himself as an unjustly accused murderer, but his letter does not even request the police to locate the real killer of his ex-wife and her friend. Shapiro handled the questions from the reporters at the press conference. One asked why Kardashian had read the letter. After all, the letter, on the whole, was highly incriminating of Shapiro's client. "'We read it because it is the only words that we have from O.J.' Shapiro replied. This answer says much about the care and feeding of celebrity clients. O.J. wanted it done, so it was done. It is possible that Simpson wanted the letter read only in the event that he committed suicide.' Others who attended the meeting at Kardashian's house were appalled that the letter was read to the public. There would have been no harm in Shapiro's waiting a while, and then deciding whether to read the letter. But reading the letter simultaneously granted O.J.'s last wish, and served Shapiro's own interests, by demonstrating that the lawyer had been duped by a despondent and possibly deranged man." Elaborating on the question of why he had the letter read, Shapiro went on, I have never felt worse in my professional career as a result of what has happened today. In other words, Shapiro had it read, in part, because it made him feel better. Another question again illustrated the way Simpson's status as a celebrity affected the way his case was conducted. Shapiro mentioned that three letters had been found at Kardashian's house one to the public, which Kardashian had read out loud, one to his children, and one to his mother. A reporter asked if Shapiro had read all three. No, the lawyer said. They are under seal and will be turned over to the persons to whom they are addressed. All three letters constituted crucial evidence in locating a fugitive accused of murder. First and foremost, it was the police who were entitled to seize and read those letters. "'Yet Shapiro and Kardashian blithely walked out of the house with them "'and then announced that the fugitive, not the police, "'would determine who read them. "'This was so much the natural order of things in Los Angeles "'that the removal of the letters from the house "'scarcely drew a word of comment in the local media. "'Nor was that Shapiro's most remarkable answer at the press conference. "'What were the last words you heard from O.J. Simpson?' a reporter asked. This question called for him to reveal a communication that may have been subject to Simpson's attorney-client privilege, yet Shapiro did not hesitate to answer. My personal words with him were of a complimentary nature to the way I had been with him and for him to thank me for everything I had done up to date, he replied. The response raised another question, which went unasked. "'If Simpson was offering you valedictory thanks "'about your efforts on the case, "'why didn't you think he was about to flee? "'Many lawyers with a client on the run "'would have gone straight to their desks "'and worked the phones to sniff out any clue "'of the missing man's whereabouts. "'But Shapiro had never liked to spend "'any more time than necessary at the office. "'After the press conference, he simply went home. "'His wife, lynell greeted him at the door.' Where have you been, she asked. He's on television, Bob.
4: Context of white supremacy. Uh, So we are still in Chapter 5. It's got, I guess, a little break point, and we will resume the sentence. The LAPD had put out an all-points bulletin for Al Cowlings right around the time of Gascon's press conference. That's what we'll pick up at. We're still in chapter five. If you have thoughts, observations, questions, want to share where you were when the Bronco chase took place way, way back. Twenty six years ago. Uh, The number to dial seven, two, zero, seven, one, six, seven, three hundred. The code five, six, four, nine, four, Press star six one if you would like to participate. Man, I well, this is my reminder. I'm going to have to give this out every week as we proceed. If we can. And we did a pretty good job last week. Myself, everybody. This is a reminder for Gus as well. Uh, if we can stay within the chronology of the book. I know, you know, massive event. We got more than a year of OJ coverage left to go in the book, the trial and all that stuff. Uh, So if we can stay within the chronology of the book, uh, we will have lots and lots of time to get to, you know, all that is going to take place down the road. Right. So let's stay within the chronology of uh, the text. Having said that, man, if you, in any way like if you if this is your first time like seriously studying uh, this material the case like if you didn't uh, watch the case uh, what was happening every day and all that stuff if you're too young right we got some folks that are younger number one court TV this is the 25 year anniversary man the cows timing is amazing we're not even reading this book for OJ we're reading this because of zoom bomber Jeffrey Tubin, but this is the 25 year anniversary of the trial court TV broadcast the entire trial live. that some say that was the genre of all these true, all the Netflix, uh, gore documentary things that I complain about all the time, that that was the genesis of a lot of this in addition to a lot of other things. Uh, but court TV, they have a 25 part series uh that aired just a few months ago about the case it is amazing uh i spent basically the past, it's way better than anything on netflix way 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 better it's so it's 25 parts and each part is like an hour basically uh but they go through All of the testimony, or the a lot of it, I mean, it's not all obviously, but I mean, they go through a lot of the testimony so you can, you know, walk through exactly what happened and the opening statements. And I mean, you can just see not everything, but I mean, 25 parts is not exactly an abbreviation. It is amazing. I would definitely encourage folks to check it out, and I would add. I I am getting ahead right because he's not in the text yet, but I'll just say it so that you have time to appreciate even from what we heard right there. Time to appreciate. We call Dr. Francis Cress Welsing a grandcester. Johnny L. Cochran Jr. is a grandcester like plus, 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 plus like, wow. Uh, We are reading last man standing the tragedy and triumph of Geronimo G. Jaga Pratt after this book, like that's already a done deal. That'll be 2021. If we're still alive after the Rona and the vaccine and everything, that's the first time that I got serious information is about that case with Johnny Cochran. But as I said, we mentioned him at the beginning of the year. I think he got one of the biggest environmental racism settlements in the history of the United States. like, Johnny L. Cochran Jr., grandcester and like attempted counter racist extraordinaire. <laughs> like, woo! Johnny, if you have a take, take the time. I mean, it's all throughout that court TV series. Uh, and the trial is online. You can, you know, pick out spots and everything. Whew. Johnny L. Cochran Jr. Grandcester number again is 720 716 the code 564-943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate email is until justice at gmail.com uh, again so if you want to share if you care uh, where you were when all this happened if relevant and then Also, I'll ask based on what you heard. Oh, before I forget, the letter I was watching, I watched the whole 25 parts of the court TV series. They do towards the end of the trial. The prosecution has an exhibit where they show the letter that I read at the very beginning of the book. Uh, this illiterate love letter to nicole brown Simpson from o j they do have an exhibit where they actually blow up the love letter and they present it uh to the jury as a part of their theory about motive but they do they do have the actual letter they have it blown up, and it 's like oh okay there 's the letter from Jeff Tubin. that if you watch the trial, I think it 's closer to the closing arguments, but uh that is way down the road but just since he does begin the book in that manner but if you want to give a thought on where you were when all this happened and with regards to the letter do you think that this letter is incriminating does this sound like uh the writings of a guilty individual who has killed uh his ex-wife and this other white man or does you know I don't know if it's guilt or not. Sounds like, you know, he might be not thinking correctly or definitely suicidal, whatever you think it is. Tending to something other than, yeah, this is this is definitely someone who is what they say, red handed. And this is the way that I've determined to get out of it because I know I have done some really bad things and I'm about to get my comeuppance. What are your your thoughts on the letter uh, as we hear it from Mr. Tubin, Zoom bomber number one of Two Thousand? 20. Uh, let's see. We'll get to the folks who dialed in star six one four for hands. Can I be hurt? Uh, greetings, Henry in Chicago, Chicago. Oh my God. They racked the whole yes for the, for the time when OJ came <laughs> out and stashed the knife out there where you are.
6: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. <laughs> um, Greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Uh, I was actually a second-year undergrad uh, uh, college student uh, here at a local university here, so I was aware of it. Uh, I was kind of mad that they did interrupt the finals uh, for the Bronco Chase, Uh, but, you know, I was more confused about racism as well. Um, Weissman, not fired, but discharged. Uh, Obviously, white people don't get fired, uh, so even if it's other white people, you know, transferring them or letting them go. It it seems like Shapiro was not favorably favorably liked among white people. Um, first of all he was Jewish. Uh the police kind of believed that he was, you know, trying to or 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 help OJ get away. Uh so, you know, it's uh, and even the author himself, you know, calling, you know, kind of like describing him as a as a self-serving type of person so uh, yeah a lot of white people didn't like Robert Shapiro even though he was a white person himself Uh, Garcetti labeling uh, OJ as the falling of American hero which I thought it was interesting because I asked myself this question because his name was mentioned earlier in the book of Jim Brown and I'm like if Jim Brown would have committed these murders, would he be labeled as the falling of an American hero? Um, I highly doubt it. Uh, lots of names dropped in this uh, reading. Uh, one in particular, Bruce Jenner, a.k.a. catman Jenner, uh, winner of the Arthur Ashe Courage Award in 2015, which is ironically the 20th anniversary of the, of the whole OJ case. Um, the love letter... And the suicide note. You know, i I don't have the book but I was listening to it and I don't know if the suicide note is also uh is featured in the uh in the book as, as like, you know, the, the picture of it. But it just seemed like the, the, the verbiage is like a little inconsistent and they didn't mention anything on the suicide note about misspellings and stuff like that, so I thought that was pretty interesting, uh, with the inconsistency of the the, the love letter and the suicide note. Um, nineteen ninety four, that was a it was an interesting uh, it was actually an interesting man match here. Uh along with OJ uh having his mugshot on uh on Time magazine, uh another uh young uh non white black male had his mug shot on Time Magazine uh, actually, actually a couple of months after OJ, which was uh, Robert sanifer from Chicago, 11-year-old uh, who was a gang member who uh, shot at other gang members and accidentally killed a, uh, a young uh, non-white uh, black female. And his picture was, you know, kind of plastered all over, all over not just the Chicago news, but... Across the country, and, and like I said, his his face ended up getting put on Time Magazine. I think back in in August, like I said, like about two months after that whole Bronco chase, uh, and also ninety four was the same year Tupac got accused of uh, raping that uh, raping that uh, non white black female, which uh, got him in jail that next year. So uh, I thought that was uh, pretty interesting as well. But uh, that's all I had on in my life.
4: Rough year. 1994. Wow. Uh, Much obliged uh, caller in Henry in Chicago. Uh, Let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up. If you have commented, my goodness, this (laughs) we should have. We have. I'm straining. I don't ever remember us having this many people on the line for the book. Like I've said, the book club has been poorly attended, like from. Inception in two thousand eleven. Like we should have just read OJ from day one and we would have had everybody. Uh so and this is why we're now going slower. It took me a while. I'm a victim, greatly retarded. It took me a while to catch, like, oh, everybody loves talking about OJ. Like we have to go much slower. So now we will have time to everyone can share. So yes, all of the folks who have dialed in with a hand up, uh, line should be or not everybody. See, see. Look at that. Not everybody who has a hand up. Your line is not open. We'll have to see if we can go in order. Uh, did I hear any females there? I guess not. I'll no, pick not
7: then, but Oh. Oh, yes. Okay. me.
4: Namaste. Let's let's get it.
7: Namaskaram beautiful people. I did not get to chime in right then when all of the men callers just spoke, but since I'm on my way to work, I will lose service, so I will be super late on it. Um, to follow, to be the first to speak after you said that, I really don't care about the OJ case, to be clear. Um, it just happens to be that I can chime in a little bit more now. But, uh, yeah, no, I don't really care about this case. One thing, though, that is striking to me, and, and I was a child, when all this happened, so and I wasn't even in the United States. um, So I have no, um, like, nothing to really stand on. Like, I don't remember it at all. The most that I can say I recall from my history is just the jokes that come from it, like in pop culture and things like that. Um, But one thing that is standing out to me that I just kind of wanted to point out about the text is how scary it is to be at the top or the zenith of something that you do and be surrounded by so many people who are classified as white and think they're your friends. And then the minute something isn't right, how quickly they uh, throw you under the bus. And that's just what I heard in this section repeatedly. I mean, the author made it a point to really stress that, like such and such looks after himself, ah. such and such as himself. But there's such a theme and a pattern in that. And for me, I think now, because I, like I said, I know nothing about OJ. I actually wasn't even – I didn't know he was a football player. I have to be honest with that. Um, But it's really sad that it definitely appears and sounds like all the people that are around him are white. So it doesn't – I don't know if he had any non-white friends or any close relationships with people who are non-white or black whatsoever, which leads me to believe the self-hate inside of him – well, I mean, he was – you know father children with women who are classified as white so that is already what that is but just that i think is really really sad and to me that point was driven home in this section of the text thank you all for letting me speak to the men who allowed me to speak thank you so much i'll meet my mom
4: much obliged Emmy, I think. Other than Al uh, Cowling, or so I guess he did uh, mention Marcus Allen, a few other folks that was problematized. But yeah, mostly individuals classified as white, white friends for the Jews. Uh, let's see. I'm just picking the person. Can I be hurt? There we go. Caller in Florida, uh, retired firefighter in Florida.
0: Uh greetings Gus. Greetings, greetings everyone. Uh just have one quick question before I get started. What 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 month of nineteen ninety four that was June? Okay.
4: Are you still with us, retired firefighter? June nineteen ninety four. Uh oh, we're not hearing it. Yeah, can you it. hear oh, me? Yes, now we can hear you.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I was something like, uh, 13th, 14th year on the fire department. And, uh, uh, really, with, with, uh, when the moment that, uh, uh, the, uh, murders took place, and o j simpson was uh understood uh to be the may have may or may not have something to do with the uh with the incidents uh the mainstream i would say the mainstream press basically you know had him uh indicted and convicted uh almost immediately uh everything every 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 day it was something on on the situation. This is even before he got arrested, uh, and and uh, everything pointed towards rental James Simpson, uh, and that continued all the way through the trial. Actually, uh, during that time, uh, there wasn't that much alternative uh, uh, press or information uh, during that time, like it is now. Uh, just about everything came from your major uh, local channel channels and the national channels and whatnot, that sort of thing. And of course we know all of that and is ultimately controlled by white people inside and out. Uh, so that's what basically was given. I had already at that time had, had some, un- I hear something else in the background. Okay. Well anyway, uh, I had already by that time, you know, through my personal studies on a rental James Simpson, you know, kind of like wasn't really interested in the, in the trial itself uh, from uh, studying the comments of Jim Brown, who knew OJ uh, said that, you know, he, he was consistently making the comment that, you know, the OJ Simpson that you see on television if not the same OJ Simpson in private. Uh he was, you know, kinda like talking in code uh in, in that sense. Uh uh the the, the quote unquote derogatory uh, uh uh identification would be quote unquote an Uncle Tom, quote unquote. Uh, uh but he he wasn't saying the word but he was basically leading up to that, Jim Brown, uh and uh area, which also I had already studied that and understood that and the consistencies. Now, O.J. Simpson did have a lot of black people that he was associated with that could be considered to be friends, but ultimately once he got to USC, as I mentioned before, and they recruited him to be a marketable uh, product, he basically kind of like uh, had a distance with those people that he grew up with. I mean, O.J. was from, you know, from, you know, an environment, you know, around a whole lot of, you know, black people when he was growing up, you know. But like I said before, you know, that's not, that's not, he he was, as the book was stating that he was also concerned about his markability himself and kept after it. And from that standpoint, those people uh, became expendable. I put it that way. It became expendable. Uh, There are several documentaries that have recently over the last five years or so have came out. And those people were allowed to speak a lot in those documentaries. Those very people that I'm talking about that literally grew up with a rent James Simpson, you know, hung out with them on the streets, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, uh but uh yeah that's basic. basically what I was doing at the time uh you know still coaching you know uh football myself as far as they're concerned and uh on the fire department but i didn't i didn't really didn't didn't uh uh care too much about the trial itself you know when it came down to it, you know, and that's all I' can say for right now thank you
4: much obliged uh retired Firefighter, let's see, other folks who dialed in with a hand up. Line should be open. Proceed. Here. Yes, sir.
8: Hello, everyone. Um, you can call me um, Slave0526. I was three when um, the chase was going on, and my care mate was also three. And this is my um, first in-depth study into this topic, but I've always have known of, uh,
4: the, the case throughout my life. I'll be oh, right on. <laughs> right don't to it. Much obliged. Uh, good, sir. Let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, lines should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, greetings victim in New Jersey. Hey, how you
9: doing? Um, it, you know what it was it's real interesting the author I mean he just talks about OJ's guilt as like as a matter of fact you know even though he's you know been um um found um innocent of the uh charges um I was in high school doing the um Bronco chase and I must admit outside of uh the movie uh the Naked Gun And commercials, I I really didn't know who O.J. uh, Simpson was, Um, you know, so I was, you know, I I really, so I really didn't pay attention to it. But uh, when I seen The Chase on TV, now, you know, I'm from uh, North New Jersey, and during this time, there was, um, you know, high levels of um, uh, um, car theft. Uh, New Jersey, North New Jersey in particular, was considered like the car theft capital of the world. So I'm familiar with car chases. So I really didn't even classify what I seen as far as O.J. uh, driving up the highway. I didn't even really consider that like a car chase. I mean, you know, a a pursuit or police escort. (laughs) You know, it just... You know, I just found it funny. I mean, it was just in slow motion um, when O.J. said that he was a battered uh, husband, and the offer—you know—he, you know—he, you know—he he, you know, makes it seem like you know O.J. couldn't been a battered, battered uh, husband. You know, so um, and if I'm not mistaken did the office say that um, Ray Allen has some kind of relation with OJ's wife? Uh, If did I hear that correctly?
4: Marcus Allen, Marcus Allen,
9: Marcus Allen. Okay. So again, Marcus Allen had um, relations with, you know, with his wife. So I'm not sure if that was before or after OJ. So, you know, kind of like, so to say that there wasn't any, Kind of tackiness coming from Nicole Simpson. So, you know, so OJ could have been a, uh, battered wife. I mean, battered husband, you know, so that just reminds me of, um, you know, the man not and, um, oh man, uh, oh, man, my, my, my memory skips me. I had something else to say. Yeah. So, um, and, and you know, just even with, there's just the attacking of um the, the, the remarks about OJ's lawyer, you know, as if um they're kind of like covering for OJ. I think um they were providing a service, which lawyers do. So, you know, that was real interesting. And um even when he talks about the uh the uh Kardashian, uh OJ's mm-hmm. friend and, you know, how they kind of suffered from some of the same um, shortcomings in their marriage. And, you know, fast forward to 2020, and, you know, this guy's on a Zoom conference masturbating. So it's just, oh, man, it's just tackiness, hypocrisy, just, I mean, just at an all-time high, you know. So good good read, though, real, real good read on this uh
4: Book that we're reading. Mm. Much obliged, caller in New Jersey. Uh, Let's see, other folks who dialed in with a hand up.
7: Hello. I'll be heard.
4: Heard both of you. Uh, Irie in Louisiana. Uh,
10: Salutations, everybody. Um, I'm making sure it's a couple things that um, I'm I'm speculating, but. I think o j um basically falls into a category um based on um uh, you know stuff discussed in the book just now that was gone over. I don't think he had self hate i think o j had um maybe even proclivities to becoming a narcissist because of his ability because of, um, the attention he was getting. And also, um, you know, it it was, it it was being cultivated in him because he was being groomed to be a product and he didn't know it. Um, I think OJ had high self-esteem and there's a video on this on YouTube. I saw, I can't remember the Institute. Uh, it's like an Institute of African, uh, something. Um, But in that video, he describes how victims of racism can have very high individual self-esteem and low group esteem. And I think that may be part of the reason why, you know, he made himself an exception to being black, hung with these, you know, white people. Because the thing is, most of the time, from my experience, white people don't think they're your friends. They think you think they're your friend, and also, like I said, just just that whole thing with the you know people offering you money, and 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 the people offering money are white. After a while, you're going to associate it with a variety of things, including a tragic arrangement, love life, you know. But one thing I wanted to add because I thought about, I was like trying to uh, do some chronology. I remember being in, uh, I believe it was uh, fifth grade um, when the Oklahoma City bombing happened. And then I was in sixth grade when the trial started and when he was exonerated. And it is highly fascinating that two white men can blow up a federal building with a sundry of people, including a lot of white people and they do not harp at all about those people the way they do O.J. Simpson I just the, de- you, the that is beyond dedication and I will mute my line with that thank you
4: Much obliged Irie uh, Thomas in New York thank you for your patience sir Well
1: no problem no problem at all um thanks to all the callers gus um yeah i don't know the football player oj simpson the oj i know is the naked gun oj simpson you know the sideline commentator on the during the football game so that's you know he was a star from that. you know to me i didn't know he actually played until much later but um I watched this trial every day. I was in high school, and um, it was the first murder trial ever you got to see every day on TV. Court TV had been out for a couple of years, but they never had a live murder trial. So this was like, you know, um, I don't know, I got sucked into the, the hype of everything. And, um, you know, um, and black, it also came on, daytime tv they would cut the soap operas off you know that's how like probably for four hours a day it would come on daytime tv and i remembered um black people would watch specific channels where they weren't so biased um the bronco chase uh, chase, i told you before i was watching the knicks game with a bunch of knicks and they were very upset um like the caller from norke um, uh, just said, uh, I grew up in Jersey City and that definitely wasn't a car chase. <laughs> uh, it was more like Chris Cowell. Remember Chris Cowell being, um, driven to his final resting place and the car was going real slow and people were holding signs and standing on the overpass, free OJ. And it was just very odd. Um, and, uh, but I had a point of reference to the game being cut off and just to show how big this was. Because when they cut the game off, they just went straight to the news and they kind of were explaining what we were about to be we were seeing. We are seeing O.J. Simpson in the Broncos. So, you know, kinda, it kind of reminded me of the 1989 World Series where they had an earthquake in the middle of the World Series and then the news just came on. And it they were kind of explaining what just happened. Like what you just saw was an earthquake in Oakland. or San Fran was playing Oakland, so they were both messed up when that happened. But um this meeting today it starts off with the Jew war. Shapiro Weitzman and um some gentleman named Kane. he made a great point. Um because why why would OJ's lawyer let him be questioned by the police? He wasn't um he wasn't Mirandaized. He wasn't under their authority. And why would he let them answer let him go and be questioned without being present with him? You know, so you can give them a nudge. Don't answer that. You know, that's just very odd. Um, LAPD, um, they lose a murder suspect. (laughs) You know, they don't get any worse than LAPD. Uh, They fall for the old jacket over the head trick. (laughs) Think he's in his house, you know. like um, And then um, OJ's camping out with Robert Kardashian. Uh, I would pay to see Robert Kardashian's face today if he saw his daughters and his grandchildren. Or better yet, if he just saw Bruce Jenner. (laughs) Um, But Shapiro and um, man, um, for a car, well, here you have these big-time lawyers. They're in a house with two black males, and they lose them. Like, how does this happen? It's not like they're in Watson or Compton. They're like in the Hollywood Hills, wherever they live, in a mansion. You lose these two black guys. They they creep out the back door. Start a Bronco, which is a loud truck. In your garage, you don't hear them pull out the door. I don't think they were ever there. Um, I always had a suspicion. Like, that story just did not add up um, during the time. And then, um, man, Fierstein, he's so racist, man. He said, oh, now here we have OJ. He left a suicide letter. So they say, um... Um, I would like to see O. J. Did he ever admit to leaving Atlanta? Um, but um he 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 he's being accused of killing the mother of his two children and O. J has other children. And he says he went to the LA Coliseum. Like this is like this is what you think of him. Like he just he's gonna go to where he scored his winning touchdown. Like that just made that was just so racist to me. Um uh, and I like I said, I don't know if he ever admitted um, the conjecture about the affair with um, Nicole and Marcus Allen. Now, I saw a letter it came out much later that was supposedly written by Nicole Simpson admitting to her relationship with Marcus Allen and feeling guilt for the white woman Marcus Allen was working, was married to uh, for you know having that relationship with them. And if you read these letters, you can find them. Her penmanship is like a fifth grader, and she misspelled words like OJ's. Like I mean, like it's terrible. I mean, I, I just I don't know. Um, but Marcus Allen testified under oath at a deposition that he never had sex with her, and he's never been arrested for lying to them. So um, Shapiro giving a press conference with the police with uh, without OJ there, telling OJ to turn himself in and um that was so unethical you're making your client look like he's guilty like that was that right there he should have been fired on the spot but you know i guess it worked out for oj last thing i'm gonna say is the prosecutor garcetti i guess he was the head prosecutor oh uh, they said he's a tough one crime prosecutor but yet a democrat <laughs> and i'm saying man the prosecutors in every major city that's not in the South is a Democrat, and they all tough on crime, especially when it's black people. Um, and I'll mute my line.
4: Thank you. Much obliged. Thomas in New York he impugned the penmanship of Nicole Brown Simpson. I do have to pause for one second. Um, it's the self I thought that was important, getting two different uh, aspects to self-hate, and then even Irie's comments about individual self-respect and then group self-respect with OJ Simpson. I had to double check. Uh, and we've talked about this on the cows before even have talked about it in some respect because he mentions, uh, some of OJ Simpson's television work and all that jazz. We've talked about it before. I've had to ask guests about it because it came out before I was born. Jeffrey Tubin Gets major demerits. One of the most popular. And I think even more viewers. Well, no, that's not (laughs) correct. I was going to say more viewers than the OJ Simpson. Wow, but not quite. But I mean, lots of television viewers. OJ Simpson has two different events that are massive Television viewership. You gonna tell me Jeffrey Tubin doesn't know it, and it's relevant to what we're talking about in terms of why black people might have some connection with the juice and how he even feels about black people. OJ Simpson was in Roots. Alex Haley, and he didn't even mention that in the book. That was a massive television event for everybody. Folks got stuck uh, in the house for a week uh, and had to sit there and watch Alex Haley and Kunta get beat. Uh, OJ was right there. Uh, In the middle of it, and I think a whole lot of people uh, saw Roots. That might have some, oh, yeah, the cast from Roots and have some sort of. Could I think people even talk fondly of LeVar Burton? He didn't kill anyone, I don't think. Major demerits for no mention of Roots, and maybe even add that into how we think about OJ Simpson and how he thinks about black people. Self respect. If you haven't seen it, maybe take a gander to watch Roots and pick out OJ's character. He runs pretty fast there. (laughs) Uh, other folks that we've missed totally, if you have a hand up. Can I be heard? Uh, Moen Dallas, yes, sir. Okay,
6: bye. Um,
4: greetings,
11: listeners and callers. Thank you for the program. Um, starting, uh, I'll, I'll start where Thomas in New York actually left off. Um, the prosecutor um Gisetti, um I highlighted the um the quote as a tough on crime prosecutor and yet a Democrat, he had a promising political future. Uh I'm I'm with Thomas in New York. Um Democrats are seem to generally be tough on crime. I I really don't know um or I can't think of at this moment any democratic politician that's light on crime or or um, or like I don't want to say against the law enforcement but definitely for the public um, a lot of the a lot of the a fair amount of the a good amount of the police murders um, occur in democratic run cities where the police aren't prosecuted and or are exonerated um, and, and proven not guilty um, um, the only women mentioned, in the suicide notes, uh, in the suicide note, are secretaries, wives, and girlfriends, an apt summary of O.J.'s view on the place of women in the world. That was uh, just a lot of the the authors' um, opinions on O.J. Simpson are 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 you know I, I feel are meant to skew the public perception is it's it's very simple to assume that the reason why those are the women that he mentioned is because those were the women that he were, he was around. Um, His friends were mainly powerful white men. So they probably all had secretaries, wives and girlfriends who he came in contact with frequently. And I mean, each man probably had one of each. So, like, it is not uncommon for that to be a part of his social circle, especially if, you know, his main 15 friends are all white and all powerful and and all these other things. Um, I did note that, um, or I took a mental note, that out of all the people that O.J. Simpson mentioned in his suicide letter, he did not mention Johnny Cochran. And I thought that was interesting because the author um, explained how him and Cochran were such good friends and and all of this, uh, I I just thought that was very interesting. How he didn't thank Johnny Cochran, uh, who ultimately would be the one of the determining factors for his exoneration. Um, uh, uh, let's see here. Um, though it was theoretically possible, the five foot five, one hundred twenty nine pound go battered her husband a 6-foot-2-inch, two 210-pound football player. There is apparently no record of O.J. seeking medical assistance because of her physical abuse. Um, and I'm not on the side of saying that, you know, his wife was battering him or nothing like that, but I can say from from personal experience and just visually seeing um Females attack their significant other, um, a lot of the times the the male doesn't call, you know, uh, the police or seek medical attention, um, especially the black male, uh, the man, not, you know, you're, you're, you're coined weak or, or something like that. If you do try to defend yourself, I guess I would say, uh, especially with, the uh, with uh with legal ramifications for a woman um uh, and i think so much so that uh, a lot of times uh victims male victims of racism don't think it's a big deal you know like we're, we we've been hit since we were however however old so at this point it's just a part of we've been programmed to accept it um where was i when this um in 1994 in June, I was a four year old. Uh, I was with my mother. I knew nothing of the trial. I didn't really know anything of OJ Simpson until I was around 14. Um, and my family didn't really like, it wasn't like, yeah, remember the time, you know, so it was none of that. Um, I think that's all I have.
4: I mute my line. Much obliged. Mo in Dallas, Uh, do we have any other folks that we missed totally?
2: May I be heard?
4: Greetings, Mr. Blue.
2: Greetings, Gus. Greetings to all of the guests. Um, In 1994, I was living in Harlem, and we were watching, like Thomas in New York, the Knicks game there was a game on and it got interrupted and everyone was severely confused and upset. And then when we realized what was actually going on, we were like, Oh, wow, this is OJ Simpson. Um, I had been, i had grown up with OJ Simpson. Um, most of my family, um, the men, especially watching sports during Thanksgiving and Christmas times. So, um, The Jets, Joe Namath, Marcus Allen, O.J. Simpson, even Jim Brown at some point before Jim Brown started doing movies. Um, So I was 24 years old in 1994 watching mixed games at the friend's house, and this is when we saw, and the game was interrupted by the O.J. Simpson um, driving down the highway in California and, um, at that time, we didn't, none of us knew anything about California extensively. But until I got to California, I realized how many, um, how, how often I should say, um, on the news, 7 o'clock, 11 o'clock news, that weekly there is a, um, highway, a high speed chase in California. When I got to like, California in 2005, um, watching the news, I realized that, Almost weekly, there was some type of high speed chase on the highways of California. So for California, I guess it wasn't something out of the ordinary. It was just it just so happened to be a celebrity, O.J. Simpson. I had seen O.J. Simpson as a child um, play football many times um, before he got into television. We revered my family, being avid football. You know, watching sports enthusiasts watching football and basketball, in particular, we all um, revered O.J. Simpson for his for his athletic prowess, along with Marcus Allen and so many other African American athletes. Um, it made us all feel very good. Uh, the rise of African American non-white black athletes becoming so-called superstars in their athletic fields. And so prior to O.J. Simpson being a television and movie star, and I also did see him in Roots because me and my whole family watched Roots um, together for that week-long extravaganza. And, um, you know, but um, we didn't know O.J. intimately we didn't know, no one knew O.J. personally. We did know that he did have a white wife. Um, we didn't know about his first wife, Marguerite, and the children through just news and the news stations of the day, but none of us knew him personally. And I wasn't codified in 1994. I started my journey but wasn't deeply codified to understand what the perils of the tragic relationship like that could be. And when the O.J. Simpson trial started to unfold, being, um, having protested for Geronimo, for the release of Geronimo Pratt and Mumia Abu Jamal in the early nineties, celebrating, um, Madiba being released from jail in the early, early nineties, um, we knew that there could be a lot of turmoil in those tragic relationships, particularly with the non-white person. And so many of my friends who were political and we had protested and did all types of things like that, seeking justice for non-white black and brown people, we we did all agree that this was going to be something to look at and to watch because this is the first time that a non-white black male had been accused, especially a celebrity, of murdering a so-called classified white woman. And um, one thing I did not know is that Marcus Allen, there was any type of um, misconduct, sexual misconduct between wives with Marcus Allen and O.J. Simpson. That was something new. And um, I'm going to continue to listen. And this is seems to be very interesting. A lot of things I did not know um, as this writer writes. I'll meet my line. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Gus.
4: Much obliged. Mr. Blue. Uh, I think, oh, i oh, oh, not even sure if we tapped everybody. Did we miss anybody who has a hand up? Can I be heard? Yes, sir.
8: Um, I want to answer your question. You asked earlier about, um, if you, about the note. And I think the note, uh, I don't know if it's an indication of him being, um, like guilty but it's a huge indication of him being very confused because in this note, he's um writing to his um so-called friends, but in the system of racism, um we don't black people aren't allowed to have friends. So uh, he's writing to all his, these these white associates
4: of his. So that's my um love y'all. Mm. Good point. It would be interesting to see, you know, how many of these folks uh, who are still alive uh, or even to see their commentary uh, by the time the trial started or a year from the time that he wrote this note, if they were still standing there with the juice like, oh, yeah, that's my guy. And I never wavered. I know he didn't do this. And, you know, riding with them all. It would be very interesting uh, to see, to kind of check, but, or even to see their response to being named in the letter. If they started to distance themselves immediately, like we weren't that cool. He's not hanging out and he did this. Um, incidentally, there is one of Mr. Simpson's eventual, uh, attorneys, uh, or actually two of them, Barry Shack, Peter Newfeld. Uh, some people, uh, say that, uh, Barry Sheck was the MVP uh, of the Simpson dream team. He did all the war. Yeah, he was their DNA expert, all of that day later. Uh, but they did an interview <clears throat> in 1996. I came into this. I'm just I never like many of the folks here. Uh, I was a child when all this happened. Certainly confused about white supremacy. Racism still am. Uh, I didn't know who OJ Simpson was out of the outside of the like commercials and just, you know, that football player didn't know anything about that or whatever else uh, and didn't care about his guilt or innocence. I did not watch the trial. I didn't read any clippings about it. I was not celebratory when he was acquitted. I wasn't angry about it. I really didn't care. Like So we're not going to have television interrupted anymore about this. Thank God. Let's move forward. That was really my view. And even. As I've been reading and researching this, I've come to realize that I thought he was guilty. Now, if you'd asked me, like I said, I didn't research. I didn't have, you know, any data behind it. It was just like, of course he did it. You know, that's crazy. Like Mark Furman planted a glove or the LAP, they planted some evidence like get out of here. Like that was even, you know, years studying racism. I really never had a thought like, no, they planted all that stuff on him and blah, blah, blah. I hadn't researched it. So I didn't have any data as I've begun to read this book. Some of the other books go through the research and all that, like to even begin to like, like, wow, maybe he didn't do this. Like it has been amazing. Just the things that folks have talked about in terms of no presumption of innocence. How, if you are a black person, I'd say, especially a black male, Man, no presumption of innocence. It was even said about the uh, Central Park five that time, the DNA data, DNA evidence exonerated them. And you still had white people like our president saying, I don't care. They did it. (laughs) They went the exact opposite route this time. The DNA. Nope. Nope. And we got a confession from somebody else. I don't care. They still did it. This time they went the other way no presumption of innocence age alibi none of dna evidence sometimes either way if it's exculpatory or incriminating black person especially a black male you had better hope you have every resource resource coin chip in the universe but one of his attorneys they shared in 96 they were talking to charlie rose who had a presumption of guilt even then. He was questioning them like, oh my gosh, you know he did it. You know he did it. And they called them out on that. But one of his attorneys, they told him, they said, you know what's extraordinary here? You had the largest law enforcement array that I've ever seen in a case. And this is a single defendant. We're not talking about there was more law enforcement investigating a single defendant homicide than investigated the 1995 World Trade Center bombing conspiracy case. The FBI, the Justice Department, Interpol, LAPD, Henry's Chicago Police Department, Thomas in New York's NYPD, All that manpower was directed at one person and one person only. That is a direct quote from Peter Neufeld, one of OJ's defense team members, white man. As I said, this is my first time studying all this. I had no idea all of these enforcement agencies were involved in this case with the presumption that OJ did it, you have all of this involvement and you can't secure a conviction. I'm about 8,000% sure he didn't do it. These folks have a reputation for like the FBI and all these folks have a reputation for not losing cases. And you have, all this help it is I don't know if he'll get into all that but it is amazing the number of white enforcement officers who got involved in this case and you couldn't get a conviction specifically oh man I can't even get to the notes. email one of our investors wrote in he said "Uh, greetings Gus chapter five Mr. Simpson has not appeared number one Saul Ferenstein psychiatrist Robert Hazinga, physician Robert Lee and Michael Baden, forensic experts. Amazing the resources that can be marshaled by racist suspects when motivated. What did I just say? What did I just say? You have all of that white manpower and you can't convict one Negro. Like, get out of here. Number two, off-duty LAPD Dennis Sebenik, moonlighting as a security guard, did not, of course. I totally forgot. I totally forgot. God, off-duty LAPD uh, LAPD Dennis Sebenek moonlighting as a security guard did not of course apprise his colleagues on the force of the whereabouts of their prey the use of the word prey is interesting I said the same thing possibly more black Miss you generally don't think of people as prey you think of animals the man not the reason I had to tap I said last week and I think it's the Rampart scandal was happening simultaneously as this was going on I said a part of that scandal was hey was the LAPD involved in the killing of Notorious B.I.G. Christopher Wallace it was rumored that off duty LAPD agents may have participated in this that was a part of the Rampart scandal so I said gee this is such an important case Uh, and That wasn't known at the time that didn't come out until later and that they were doing the same allegations of wow, planting evidence, manufacturing evidence, falsely incriminating the same allegations that are going to come out way down the road in this trial. Continuing number three, Gil Garcetti had an ideal ethnic and political resume, son of Mexican immigrants, grandson of Italian. I think he is classified as white racist suspect, I think so too number 4 Kardashian met his future wife Kristen when she was 17 and he's 34 borderline pedophilia Uh, as it stands in Washington state, that is not borderline that is statutory rape, if a individual, male or female is between 16 and I guess three uh, 17 364 days before you turn 18, the sexual partner can be no more than five years older. So if she's 17. The max age before it becomes statutory rape is 22. Anything over that. er, This is child rape, statutory rape as they call it according to the law. And that's that and even beyond that I mean and it's like that in many other states it's not like Washington State is an outlier all of that withstanding 17 we're reading this book again Zoom bomber Jeffrey Tubin. I'd be curious to know the age of the person that he was masturbating with Jeffrey Tubin is in his 60s I'd be very curious if this was some 20 year old 30 year old somebody who's half his age or (laughs) Whatever, but I would be very curious. That's why we're reading this book. Uh, Let's see. Oh, the rest of we haven't got that far yet. Okay, Uh, I'll get to a couple of my quick notes and then we will take off for the second segment uh, from chapter five. Okay, so he talks about how Mr. Simpson fired his original attorney and brings in Robert Shapiro. He says, O.J. believed King When he said that whites had let him down in parentheses, this also allowed Simpson to blame someone else for his own decision to speak to the police. Now, come on, Jeff Tubin. In my view, that's a flagrant act of white supremacy. That's what your attorney, your legal counsel is supposed to do. Save you from yourself. No, OJ, you're ignorant about the law. Don't talk to the police by yourself. You've already been handcuffed. You are a suspect. This is going to be really important what you say right now. That's what your attorney is supposed to do. Save you even from yourself sometimes. So, yes, his lawyer would be to blame for not having a better plan of, wait a minute, let me protect my black male client here, like, whoa, it's looking like he's already being, as they say, convicted in the press, let me do my due diligence to make sure this doesn't become any worse thank God he was terminated let's see Uh, this whole polygraph uh, that Mr. Simpson apparently failed uh, Alan Dershowitz, who later was added to the so-called dream team, Mr. uh, Simpson's defense team He has raised question about this, saying this is and lots of folks have talked about what they call attorney client privilege being breached and it being detrimental to Mr. Simpson, where even Mr. Uh, Tubin has pointed that out repeatedly. People that his uh, legal representatives are sharing things with the media and what have you that is not in his interest breaching attorney client privilege. This polygraph was only supposed to be between Mr. Simpson, Robert Kardashian Robert Shapiro, the white male who administers the test, Mr. Melanie, ne- uh, Dennis Nelanie. Those are the only people that are supposed to know about this uh, test. This is also supposed to be attorney client privilege, even beyond admissibility and all that. And folks, oh, like, well, wait a minute. If you just told him his wife was killed, then now he's a suspect. Is he going to be erratic? And blah, blah, blah. People saying you probably shouldn't test it. All that to the side. How did Tubin even get access to this information? Did one of the attorneys breach? uh attorney client privilege to share this information with Tubin cuz he's going to write his big best seller like man <laughs> continuing uh lots of folks coming out meet like i said no uh, thought of innocence no presumption of innocence he did it uh, he says Ferristine this guy comes in his reactions were inconsistent with what Ferristine would expect from an unjustly accused man yet Simpson was obviously not insane uh, and he says I, I thought uh, let me make sure I get the whole thing Ferstein. Feristtine's report offered Shapiro no help in constructing a defense Feriststein returned to see Simpson many times over the next two months to continue his course of psychiatric treatment like Shapiro Feristine was convinced early on of Simpson's guilt in the murders based on what what did he like did you see him like is this just based on the way he's behaving and oh yeah, we've got an erratic Negro here he did this. Let's see. This is important. Shapiro wanted Hazinga to check on Simpson's medical condition, but he also asked the doctor to document with photographs any bruises or abrasions on Simpson's body at that point, which was less than three days after the killings. His lack of any major injuries would become a central part of his defense at the trial, as it should, because it was said these two white people, Nicole and Ron Goldman, fought for their lives. This was not some passive. Oh, I'm too frightened. I'll just lay down a They both were young folks reportedly fought for their lives. How did he do this and have no marks, no bruising, a cut on the finger? And that's it. Even I'd want someone to explain how did they do the cut on the finger? Did you get any fingernail scrapings? Anyway, uh, let's see. The. Suicide note. Let's see. Before we get to the suicide note, when they talk about Garcetti having the ideal ethnic political resume, I have no idea what that means. Him having his being the son of Mexican immigrants and the grandson of an Italian, no idea how that makes you so-called an ideal ethnic and political resume, but he is classified as white, I believe. Again, we're reading this book because Mr. Tubman Zoom bomber number one for 2020. Uh, He says the DA had failed to obtain convictions against the uh, proprietors of the McMartin preschool in the lengthy child abuse case. Hmm. That's why we're reading this book. And this would be another white people do not care about children. We got another mention of Rodney King. I cannot emphasize enough Rodney King, the case, the subsequent uh, trial and unrest hugely important in this case. It's going to be mentioned over and over and over and over all the way to the very end. Uh, let's see. <laughs> He's talking about Robert Kardashian, who ultimately became a part of the defense team. Kardashian attended USC a couple of years before Simpson and served there as the student manager of the football team, the prototypical hanger on position. Huh? 25 years later, looking at the Kardashian brand, hmm, gave me pause. Continuing, for many years, Simpson and Kardashian shared lively and similar social lives. In 1978, Kardashian met his future wife, Kirsten, when she was 17, he 34. I just, that's why we're reading this book, The Sexual Perversion. I already talked about that one. Uh, I thought it... It's challenging because I feel like the hatred and white supremacy against OJ Simpson is so massive that it spills over to the white people who participated in his defense team. Uh, I think Mr. Bailey has said that he feels like he's been persecuted for years for being a part of the defense team. I'm not sure about Alan Dershowitz uh, and some of the other folks I'd have to hear. Uh, Barry Sheck, I'd have to, he's with the Innocence Project. I'd have to hear, but it seems like a lot of them have felt like they've been persecuted for being a part of this team. Uh, Tubin says that, talking about Robert uh, Kardashian, this case was his way to step over his wife, ex wife, sorry, uh, and now Caitlin Jenner, formerly Bruce Jenner. This case was his way to step over them this was better than infomercials like really being a part of a double murder and he was allegedly friends with Nicole too it wasn't like these were just some total strangers and I'm here like this is someone that I knew and was friends with and my my entrance into all this I got to read purportedly a suicide letter from my like really that's his way of thinking about all this like oh, I'm gonna outshine them they think they got it with the Thighmasters like I'm gonna be daytime on court TV for the next year I'm doubtful Uh, Let's see. The letter does have all the misspellings, just like the the suicide letter uh, as printed here has all of the misspellings that the original note uh, at the beginning of the book has. Uh, Interestingly, Tubin writes in parentheses, he said most newspapers that printed excerpts of the letter cleaned up the grammar and spelling, thereby leaving the impression that Simpson was more literate than he was. It seems like I don't know. I just get the impression that there is some anger about that. Like he shouldn't have, have have had that privilege of having his wording sanitized and let's present him to the world as the illiterate black beast that he is. Maybe I'm reading that incorrect. I will. I'll also add this book was allegedly published 1996. Allegedly, Mr. Tubin was undecided about Simpsons guilt or innocence. I find that to be totally unbelievable. It said that he eventually changed his mind to conclude that, like everybody else, that Simpsons guilty. But I mean, I don't believe that at all. I'll just state that we were very early in the book. We can pay attention, but this was supposedly 1996. This, or I guess we'll think about this 1996. We were supposed to understand this as an unbiased publication where the author doesn't have an opinion about Mr. Simpson's guilt or innocence. Hmm. Uh, in fact, I don't have anything else to say. We'll get to audio segment too. Just keep that in mind as we proceed. Does this sound like someone writing who hasn't come to an opinion about whether the juice did all this or not? Uh, oh, Greens, Gus. It's got to be like 20 seconds. Oh,
3: man. Um, just a, a power thing. I apologize. I was on the line. I'm working online right now. Um just the power dynamic of how the type of people um Mr. Simpson was around at the time. And the other aspect of the wording on page one hundred thirty four, sidebeck did not, of course, appraise his colleagues on the force of whereabouts of their prey. Prey. I just thought it was a weird usage of a word for somebody that they're supposed to go and pick up. I just right. couldn't even understand that.
4: We will um, leave it. I have there. other things to go over, but I'll Thank you kindly. stop there. We'll leave it there so that we have time to discuss. We'll wrap up Section 5. This is the conclusion of the Blanco Chase. We'll remember back, June 1994, Context of White Supremacy.
5: The LAPD had put out an all-points bulletin for Al Cowlings right around the time of Gascon's press conference at 2 o'clock p.m. Around that time, Van Adder, Lang, and their colleagues put in their first calls to the many police departments whose jurisdictions abut that of the LAPD. But because the police had never seized Simpson's passport, the cops had to cast an even wider net. They alerted the U.S. Border Patrol, as well as the airlines, the U.S. Customs Service, and the Mexican Judicial Police. It wasn't until just after Shapiro's press conference ended, however, at around 6 o'clock p.m., that the Los Angeles media confirmed the description of the car the police were seeking, a 1993 white Ford Bronco with California license plate 3DHY503. Not surprisingly, perhaps, given the vast public interest in the case, it was the broadcast announcement, not the law enforcement effort, that produced almost immediate results. Chris Thomas had been watching television at home in Mission Viejo when he learned Simpson was on the run. At 6.25 p.m., he and his girlfriend, Kathy Ferrigno, were heading north on Interstate 5 the Santa Ana Freeway, on their way to a weekend of camping. They had been joking about O.J.'s disappearance, studying in a half-hearted way the cars coming toward them, seeing if Simpson might be among them on his way to Mexico. After a few minutes of this, Ferrigno looked into the passenger-side rear-view mirror and started saying, ''Oh, my God, Chris, Chris, Chris!'' Thomas slowed down, and in a moment, Ferigno was face-to-face with Al Cowlings. When he noticed that she was staring at him, Cowlings glowered at her. Their location at that moment was about eighty miles south of Kardashian's house in Encino, near the El Toro interchange of Interstate 5. They were about a five-minute drive from the graveside of Nicole Brown Simpson. The Bronco, and this later proved important, was heading north, that is, back toward Los Angeles and away from the Mexican border. Ferigno jotted down the Bronco's license plate, and Thomas pulled to the side of the freeway by a call box. Thomas called the California Highway Patrol and gave the dispatcher his impression of Cowling's demeanor. We looked at him, you know, and he, like, stared us down, like he was death. As Simpson described it in his deposition in the civil case, he and Cowlings left Interstate 5, intending to go to Nicole's grave, but they retreated when they saw that the cemetery was staked out by police. Just a few minutes after Thomas's telephone call, Orange County Sheriff's Deputy Larry Poole saw the Bronco heading on an on-ramp returning to the northbound Santa Ana. Poole sped alongside the Bronco and looked inside. Cowlings smiled nervously at him. The officer then radioed in to check the plate on the Bronco and learned that it was a match for Cowlings. Ten-four, I'm behind it, Poole said into the radio, and with that, all air traffic on the police radio band receded into a stunned silence. As the Bronco began to move on the freeway through the city of Santa Ana, the traffic grew heavier and then came to a complete standstill. Poole and a colleague in another car, Jim Sewell, used the opportunity to leave their cars and, with guns drawn, advance by foot on the Bronco. "'Turn off your engine!' the officers shouted to Cowlings. Cowlings started screaming and pounding his left hand on the side of the door. "'Fuck no!' he said. He was banging the car so hard that it was rocking in place. "'Put away your guns! He's in the back seat and he's got a gun to his head!' Fearing bloodshed, the officers held their ground and watched Cowling's drive off as the traffic ahead of him cleared. The Bronco began moving again at moderate speed, still heading north. Returning to their black-and-white squad cars, the Orange County officials simply began following the Bronco and radioed for backup assistance. The chase was on. Cowlings turned on his car's four-way flashers and called 911 from his car phone shortly after the confrontation. This is A.C., he told the dispatcher at 6.46 p.m. I have O.J. in the car. Okay, where are you? The dispatcher asked. Please, Cowlings said. I'm coming up the 5 freeway. Right now, we all... We're okay, but you got to tell the police to just back off. He's still alive. He's got a gun to his head. "'Hold on a moment, okay? Where are you?' the dispatcher responded. "'Is everything else okay?' "'Everything right now is okay, officer. Everything is okay. "'He wants me to get him to his mom. He wants me to get him to his house.' The dispatcher patched through another voice, who asked Cowlings his name. "'My name is A.C., he bellowed. You know who I am, goddammit!' Cowlings hung up and continued driving north, in the general direction of Brentwood." The police, of course, were not the only people looking for cowlings that afternoon. As soon as the LAPD announced that O.J. was missing, Bob Turr, the dean of the L.A. media's helicopter journalists, also began scheming to find O.J. and A.C. Mulling over Simpson's predicament with his wife, co-pilot and video camera person, Marika, Bob Turr reached the same conclusion as the doctors who were treating Simpson. Tur guessed that he would try to visit his ex-wife's grave in Orange County, so he and Marika steered their KCBS chopper to Ascension Cemetery in Lake Forest. Tur noticed that the cops had staked the place out, likewise waiting for Simpson. Then Tur drifted over to the Santa Ana Freeway and caught sight of the Bronco, apparently just after Cowling's confrontation with Poole and Sewell. The backup units there would be a dozen in all, were falling into a safe distance behind Cowlings and Simpson as they headed north. KCBS began broadcasting live, and the other stations, with their own helicopters, picked up the chase a few moments later. It was, to be sure, an unusual moment in journalism, but not quite as rare as many people thought. The freeway chase, broadcast live by cameras mounted in helicopters, is a staple of television news in Los Angeles. Local stations break into programming on a regular basis to follow the most routine chases, even some that emerge out of traffic infractions. Bob Turr had had 128 previous journeys like this one, and local pilots all know the drill. They follow police transmissions on their scramblers, Even though the Bronco was picked up on camera about 70 miles from the house on Rockingham, the helicopter pilots' intimate knowledge of the local terrain meant that they could, and did, project exactly where the Bronco was going. As a result, for those watching in the Los Angeles area, there was no mystery about Simpson's plan or his route. For the national audience, however, it was another story. One after another, the networks broke into their regular programming to pick up the chase, live. NBC skittered back and forth from the Bronco to the fifth game of the National Basketball Association Championship Series. Between the New York Knicks and Houston Rockets, the network anchors were far less familiar with the customs of these helicopter chases and completely ignorant of Los Angeles freeway topography. Their narratives, accordingly, reflected only bewilderment at the scene unfolding before them. On ABC, for example, Peter Jennings repeatedly confessed that he did not know where the Bronco was or where it was going. These uninformative non-descriptions somehow made the chase even more hypnotizing for the rest of the nation. Simpson's televised journey into the unknown transformed a tabloid murder into an international phenomenon. Approximately 95 million Americans watched some portion of the chase on television, which exceeded that year's Super Bowl audience by about 5 million. With the helicopters gathering above, the Bronco continued north on the Santa Ana, passing Disneyland and Anaheim, and then headed west on the Artesia Freeway. It was here in the period just after 7 o'clock p.m., Pacific Time, that word of the chase spread, and television coverage became ubiquitous. Seven news helicopters followed the Broncos' trail. Crowds began forming in Compton, a small, heavily black city just south of Los Angeles. The crowds were small at first, just a few dozen people drawn to the spectacle by what they had seen on television. Cowlings turned off the Artesia traveling less than a mile south on the Harbor Freeway, and then west on I-405, the San Diego Freeway. These moves confirmed what Cowlings had told the police. Though he still had a good thirty miles to go, he was en route to Simpson's house in Brentwood. The San Diego Freeway took Simpson through Torrance, a community not at all like nearby Compton. Mark Furman, in his distinctive style, once explained the difference. His taped interviews with aspiring screenwriter Laura Hart McKinney contained the following description. Westwood is gone. The niggers have discovered it. Torrance is considered the last white middle-class society. The reaction to the Bronco was different in the last white middle-class society. No supporters lined the highway, and O.J. and his helicopter entourage passed through without fanfare. In Inglewood, and at the edge of Watts, the largely African-American communities to the north, the spectators returned. They were shouting encouragement at this point. Go, O.J., many screamed. Save the juice! The helicopters had to pull back briefly when the Bronco, curving gently north along the contour of the Pacific Ocean, passed by Los Angeles International Airport. The scene on television became even stranger for a moment when the cameras from the choppers showed several jetliners landing beneath them. Their airspace clear, the helicopters then resumed the chase as the Bronco moved into the densely populated west side. Hundreds of people lined the overpass at Venice Boulevard, another area with a heavy minority population. Several people held up encouraging signs, and many were yelling in support of O.J., Knowledgeable television broadcasters had been speculating for some time that Cowlings would leave the San Diego Freeway at the Sunset Boulevard exit, since it was the most direct route to Simpson's home in Brentwood. Yet notwithstanding the advance notice, the crowd of people at Sunset Exit was modest, perhaps a couple of dozen. That area, of course, is the edge of Bel Air, perhaps the wealthiest and whitest community in all of Los Angeles. Only a handful of the people there turned out to cheer for O.J. Cowlings indeed left I-405 at sunset. Then he dodged traffic for about a mile until he could make a right turn into the privileged, hilly precincts of Brentwood. He knew a shortcut. Instead of making a right onto Rockingham, he turned north off Sunset, one street earlier, onto Bristol Avenue, With the helicopter still tracking him among the gated homes, Cowling then made a left onto Ashford, from which he could turn into O.J.'s driveway. Cowlings, however, almost didn't make it. There were so many television satellite trucks parked on tiny Ashford that Cowlings had to slow to nearly a full stop to inch his way past them. With dusk fast approaching, Cowlings finally managed to pull into the driveway at 360 North Rockingham. The Broncos' flashers illuminated the cobblestones in the driveway from which, earlier that week, police had scraped blood samples. It was shortly before 8 o'clock p.m. At about 7.15 p.m., when A.C. and O.J. were still wending their way to Brentwood, Detective Tom Lang had reached Cowlings on the cellular phone in the Bronco. In their conversation, Cowlings confirmed that he was heading to OJ's home and that Simpson remained suicidal. Lang did his best to calm the situation. Without telling Cowlings, Lang also arranged for the LAPD's SWAT team to go to the Rockingham House and prepare to arrest Simpson there. A team of about 25 SWAT specialists, with their arsenal of stun grenades and night-sighted weaponry, arrived at Rockingham about 15 minutes before Cowlings did. Several of Simpson's friends had set up a vigil there, but the officers evicted everyone except Kardashian and O.J.'s 24-year-old son, Jason. True to form, though, the LAPD did invite one outsider to tag along— Roger Sandler, a photographer for Time and Life magazines. The SWAT team's plans nearly went awry immediately. As soon as the Broncos stopped in the driveway, Jason sprang from the front door and began yelling at Cowlings, who seemed to be equally hyped up. The six foot five inch Cowlings, a defensive lineman, taken out of USC by the Buffalo Bills the year after they selected Simpson, stuck his long arm out the driver's window and pushed Jason away. There was a considerable poignancy to the scene. Jason's relationship with his father had long vacillated between poor and non existent. Cowlings' pokes made clear the status of the pudgy and unathletic son. He was not wanted in his father's moment of crisis. A pair of officers gingerly approached Jason and all but dragged him back into the house. Jason's approach unnerved Cowling's. He started screaming that the police had to get back, get away. He even stepped out of the car and caught sight of one of the officers posted on the wall along Ashford. "'He's got a gun!' Cowling screamed before he re-entered the car. "'Don't do anything stupid!' Get the police away! The police, of course, were not going to go away. Lang had handed over negotiating duties to the SWAT team's Pete Weirder, who was posted inside O.J.'s house. Wirriter reached O.J. on the cellular phone and attempted to talk him into surrendering. Minutes passed, and the world waited to see if O.J. Simpson would blow his brains out on live national TV. Unaccustomed to chases of this duration, the local television stations agreed that they could share one another's pictures of the scene, so each helicopter would have a chance to refuel. Suddenly, there was very little to see, just the Bronco parked in the driveway. Close observers noticed one spectator with the best view of all. Jason had brought Cato, the white Akita that had apparently witnessed the murders, to live at Rockingham. The dog, which Jason would later rename Satchmo, wandered around the Bronco as O.J. and A.C. lingered inside it. The silence at the driveway standoff contrasted dramatically with the scene unfolding at the foot of Rockingham on Sunset Boulevard. A raucous crowd, several hundred strong, had gathered there, drawn to the drama. Sunset was impassable. Even residents of the area couldn't get home. Shapiro had asked Michael Bodden and Saul Fairstein to meet him at O.J.'s home, but the wall of people prevented either doctor from reaching Rockingham. Local reporters broadcasting live from sunset found a stark racial division at the scene. The whites, minority of the revelers, were curiosity seekers, looky-loos in the LAPD phrase, who had come simply to experience the bizarre scene. The African-Americans, on the other hand, had mostly come to show solidarity, and their chants and shouts made their feelings clear. Free O.J., they repeated again and again. Interviewed on KCBS, one of them said, ''I feel like the black people ought to come together. They're trying to make us extinct.'' A woman then added, ''First it was Michael Jackson and Mike Tyson and Rodney King. I'm calling for the unification of the black race.'' Up at the Rockingham house, Weirder eventually obtained Simpson's promise that he did not intend to hurt anyone except himself. The negotiator told O.J. that his children needed him. Simpson asked to speak with his mother, who had checked into a San Francisco hospital for stress-related symptoms. "'No problem,' said Weirder. "'Just come inside.' He seemed to be making progress when the battery in O.J.'s phone went dead." Cowlings went into the house to fetch a replacement. Finally, Simpson agreed to give up. You'll have to come to us, said Mike Albanese, chief of the SWAT unit. After a pause, Simpson hesitantly put a foot out the door of the Bronco. It was 8.53 p.m., nearly an hour after Cowlings had arrived at Simpson's home. In his hands, O.J. held a couple of family pictures, which he had been clutching in the car he staggered into the foyer and collapsed into the officers arms I'm sorry guys Simpson kept repeating I'm sorry I put you through this Albanese allowed Simpson to use the bathroom and gave him a glass of orange juice to drink while he called his mother on the telephone deferential even then the officers finally asked whether Simpson was ready to go he nodded the officers put handcuffs on him and led him out the front door with Roger Sandler behind them recording the moment for posterity and time. The police had forbidden the news helicopters from shining their powerful lights down on the scene, so the public never saw Simpson being placed in an unmarked cruiser for the trip downtown. With Simpson gone, other members of the SWAT team examined Cowling's Bronco. When he was booked at the police station, Cowling's had $8,750 in cash in his pockets. In what appeared to be Simpson's travel bag, they found O.J.'s passport and a plastic bag that contained a fake goatee, a fake mustache, a bottle of makeup adhesive remover, and three receipts from Cinema Secrets Beauty Supply, dated May 27, 1994. The officers also found a fully loaded Smith & Wesson three fifty seven Magnum blue steel handgun. It was registered to Lieutenant Earl Paysinger, yet another of Simpson's friends on the LAPD. About five years earlier, at a time when Paysinger was providing security for O.J., the lieutenant had bought his client the gun. An 18-car caravan escorted Simpson to his booking at Parker Center. He was then transported to the L.A. County Jail for his first night in custody, which he spent on suicide watch. In his book, I Want to Tell You, Simpson wrote, The first week I was in jail, I thought about Jesus being crucified.
4: Context of white supremacy. Rodney King again. The whole way. Rodney King. Number is 720 716 7300 the code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, if we miss you totally, do not wait until the last minute. Go ahead and get your hand up right now so we can get your commentary and questions, whatever other thoughts. Uh, let's see. I'll get in our last remark from our person who emails. He wrote. <clears throat> Number five on ABC, Peter Jennings repeatedly confessed that he did not know where the Bronco was. Jennings received a somewhat infamous prank call during this live broadcast. You can find it on YouTube. It sounded like a white male trying to sound black man. I will look forward and see if I can post it immediately. Folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary to share, proceed. May I be heard? Yes, sir.
3: Yeah, um just trying to get back to that comment. It was on page 164 where they were uh, speaking about the the views of Mark Furman. Um, and his comment was about the area um, around Compton. And he said, Westwood is gone. The niggers have discovered it. And Torrance is considered the last white middle-class society. I just think it's interesting that these are the words from the defenses eventually, and I'm not going too far ahead, but these are the words of the, One of the main um, people, witnesses, or quote unquote, um, defense witnesses that are going to be in the case. And this is one of his most, this one of his lines coming directly from him. And they still put him on the stand knowing (laughs) how this man thought. Um, Another thing, this is more small on the aspect of just learning. um, This is page 155. The Simpson demonstrated a certain presence here even though he was ultimately acquitted he did become a pariah um, i just wasn't aware of that word pariah actually and um and people look people do look and point i didn't really um know the words i actually had to go do some digging and uh find out the word is kind of like an outcast a certain person that looks um is looked down upon and not a part of quote-unquote so-called society um the, you already mentioned this, but the Kim Kardashian, um, page 147 where he meets his wife at 17 and he's 34. Uh, I, I just don't even understand how that's even possible, uh, and, and, or even occurred. But in this system, well, we had Jeffrey Epstein say so that's quite obvious. Um, and that's being, that'll be all for now. I'll mute my line.
4: I tracked down much obliged, sir. Uh, I tracked down the racist uh, prank call. <clears throat> uh, they have it published uh, on a Buffalo. Obviously he was with the Buffalo bills, Buffalo website and some other places as well. It's on YouTube. Uh, it's been 20 years since arguably the best phone call of all time. Everyone remembers what they can of the OJ Simpson case. Back in 1994, Peter Jennings was reporting while looking at a helicopter view of OJ's house. When this neighbor called in to report what he saw according to Spin, contrary to popular belief it wasn't Howard Stern regular Captain Jenks that talked his way into speaking with ABC News anchor Peter Jennings but a devoted fan one Maury from Brooklyn the call itself was nothing spectacular a supposed witness saying in a cartoonishly racist dialect that I see OJ man and he looks scared And closing naturally with a Baba Booey racist hijinks all the way through other folks who dialed in with a hand up proceed. Can I be hurt? Greetings Henry in Chicago. Uh,
6: Yes. uh, Kathy Ferregno and Chris Thomas. I looked it up, and I guess Kathy Ferrigno is the cousin of bodybuilder Lou Ferrigno. Um, interesting what uh, the author was talking about, uh,
3: the difference between
6: whites coming to the scene uh, uh, of the uh, uh, at Brentwood compared to what blacks' uh, intentions were. I guess he said that they were coming to look for solidarity. I mean, I really don't know what what he what he's talking about or what, what he means by that. Um I was also thinking about the uh you know since you talked about the uh the docudrama uh the docudrama that was on uh on uh FX, uh the guy who played OJ um, Cuba Gooding Jr. tragic arrangement just like OJ was. Um and also too uh going back to Alan Dershowitz and he you know, he's part of the quote unquote dream team along with uh Shapiro and Cochran and Athley Bailey. And I was looking at his I was looking at his his history and he has a very interesting resume. Uh he's his clients were Mike Tyson, Patty Hearst, Jeffrey uh Harvey Weinstein, uh Julian Assange, and uh yeah, this is uh, along with O.J. Simpson. So it's like, oh, and Jeffrey Epstein. I forgot about him. So, and also Donald Trump. He's also uh, he's also one of the legal representatives that uh, that tried to defend Donald Trump in his impeachment trial. So I, I, I'd be interested to see what else this author says uh, of uh, Dershowitz's involvement in this case. But it seems like he has an extensive resume. Uh, very interesting clients. Uh, so. But that's all
4: I have. I, mean, I life. lots of sexual misconduct through and through with his client and even Mr. Dershowitz in the Epstein case, which is ongoing. Who knows uh, what will happen? You know, 2021, we got more folks. Uh, Giseline Maxwell, I believe, still, you know, being prosecuted and everything. So more to come in that case. But he was also accused. Mr. Dershowitz himself of. Uh, sexual misconduct, child rape. So we shall see way down the road, though, with Mr. Dershowitz, uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up proceed. While folks get their thoughts together quickly, I can add Mr. Dershowitz, I believe, is what they call an appellate attorney, uh, which generally means uh, if you're going to be filing an appeal, uh, you go through the trial, you get a verdict that you're not pleased with. So you're going to appeal uh, the decision. That's generally the type of lawyer that he's <clears throat> considered to be. So some people would say you would get him if you think you might have a chance of a loop. I think. Yeah, this is all we haven't got that far yet. We'll get to that later. Other folks who dialed in. Maybe folks are still thinking for the time. I'll double check. Make sure. Get there. Yeah. Maybe they're still thinking for the I mean, I- Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, excuse me. I got
1: a little horse. So um, yeah, they gave OJ, the police gave OJ some OJ. <laughs> I thought that was fun. Um, the irony, um, you know, here, Mr. Simpson, um, I'm sorry, guys. I didn't mean to put you through all this. It's all right. Use the bathroom. We'll give you some orange <laughs> juice. Oh, man. Um, man. Um, total box by the Los Angeles Police Department yet again. They allow this long car chase where the guy's really not even driving fast enough to try to get away from. So they allow the public to have too much information, so now people are on the side. It's like how how backwards are you? Like the NYPD would have set up a roadblock. You weren't going, but so far, um, you know, get that camera out of here. Let's you know, just in case he blows his brains out. You know, I mean, it just everything they did was just to me totally for TV. This was almost scripted, and um. Good Gooding Jr., in my opinion, he's paying the price of taking this role. Um, you know, they're never gonna let OJ, this is the last person I would play, because white people might just get that impression, you know. Um, probably better off playing that turner than OJ. OJ, um, getting locked up, um, for killing a white woman, um, and, of course the people say the black people need to unify <laughs> like that's the, like that's the problem in this case here you know it's it's just um the the way things played out right after this while this whole thing was going on we felt black people felt like this was a like you said earlier Gus, a continuation of the the white supremacist policing you know it's no way oj did this you know what i'm saying it was, that was our premise, and we were, uh, I remember, and I know I'm going ahead, but I'm not going to talk about the book. The day OJ verdict was coming out, and I was going to college, In um, I done went through high school into college. I'm going, and I'm, I'm in, um, part of Jersey City called Journal Square, and we're all standing around the television because they had the TV store, and we're plotting, like, man, if you just, if they lock him up, we're taking these TVs like everyone's planning on looting because of OG, Unbelievable. But um, that that was how and then when he got acquitted, we had cheering and the white people were pissed. But um, yeah, I'll be my line. Thank you.
4: Much obliged, Thomas in New York. I will gingerly, kindly request this is a lengthy book it will be 2021 probably black history month before we get to the trial so let's please resist the urge i know we all have lots and lots of juicy stories about you know the gloves don't fit and all kinds of wonderful things but in the chronology uh that is we got a long way to go long way to go other folks who dialed in with a hand up much obliged thomas in new york other folks with a hand up proceed Yes,
0: sir. Can I be heard again? Yes, sir. Uh yes. Uh Al Collins was probably an example of one of the uh few uh non white black friends that survived uh in, in relating with uh OJ. And I think primarily because he uh was a good enough football player they actually grew up together uh and uh he went on to usc as the uh last report stated and played on the same nfl team uh at the same time with uh, oj Uh, so i think that's probably a a reason why the relationship still continued after uh OJ retired because he was primarily played with him all through and, and also his first wife his first wife the the non-white black female was Al Collins' girlfriend before she became uh Mrs. Simps- Simpson uh, o, uh according to what a uh, book that I read OJ basically took uh the uh attention uh of of uh uh this lady from Al Collins to him to himself. Uh and they you know just remained uh friends from that standpoint. Uh just wanted to uh, uh allude to everyone in case since most people don't even know he was a football player, uh he did not rival with Jim Brown in terms of playing, time, playing in the same era, uh, and Marcus Allen did not play in the same era of O.J. Of Simpson. They, they all are sp- they, the the three figures are all spreaded out. I would say, uh, just to give a, 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 a idea of O.J.'s football popularity, he is probably was the best NFL football player of the 1970s. Uh, so that that's what gave him that. And also that his, uh, being on television almost every day in commercials and whatnot gave him such a popularity amongst black people that was, uh, that's kind of like, uh, uh, we have been anxious for things like that to be seen on television, that sort of thing. And, uh, that has a lot to do with his popularity uh, in itself, not so much about on OJ's behalf, but, uh, from the standpoint on how he was marketed and it's, and his athletic ability and that's all I have to say. Thank you.
4: Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, let's see other folks, uh, commentary. They want to make sure that they get in.
3: Um, may I be may I be hearing one again? Yes, sir. Uh just more of a more of a question because this this is um my position on something that occurred during the, the reading well during the session when he was speaking with the um when he was actually having the test and it was the um the lie detector test and it was incorrect and I don't know. I felt like there were things that the psychiatrist was saying that that seemed they could have gone either way. Let's just say this. The, the dynamic that they were speaking about was that every second when he spoke, O.J. was speaking about himself and not speaking about Nicole or anybody else that was murdered. And I think that comes from the fact that throughout what we've been reading, he has been somewhat focused on himself. So why would that be a surprise to the psychiatrist or anybody else that was around? It seemed like they lacked the understanding of what type of individual they were dealing with. And for all he knows, who does he know? He doesn't even know these psychiatrists. So why would he be that personal and that relatable to them? You know, that's just my, my observation in reading that. I was just kind of caught off guard out how the the author made decisions that were just kind of, um, I think one-sided in that regards to, to what might've been transpiring there. I'm in my line.
4: Much obliged, much obliged. Uh, I will get in a few of my notes and then double check before we get ready to wrap things up. There's so much material on this. Uh, this is probably one of the subjects that has tons and tons of books uh, written on it. You can read like all of the participants, Robert Shapiro Alan Dershowitz, Marsha Clark, Chris Darden, O.J. Simpson—like everybody—in uh, terms of the major participants—wrote uh, a book. So, lot. In addition to other journalists, incidentally, I will say Jeff Tubin is one of the few journalists who actually got a seat. He was able to sit for the duration of the trial. Um, there were very few journalists who got that uh privilege we'll say. Uh and we can compare and contrast as we proceed to what he has to say as opposed to some of the other limited journalists who got that lucky treasure to hang out for the duration. Uh let's see, where he talks about in the suicide letter, and Jeff Tubin says OJ saying that he can't take it he's going to bail out and he just couldn't deal with the pointing and becoming a pariah as he has been for the last 25 years and Toobin says a more rational and generous reaction might have been to hold his children close and assure them that they were not going to lose a father too uh, and saying that hey this is ridiculous you know his his whole narcissistic response to this and I just processing incidentally I'll even pause here I didn't watch the trial I didn't read all the the news clippings and such I was just upset about the game when I find out when I found out that these murders happened with OJ and Nicole's children in the house that drastically altered my thoughts about this and I've read where some other people who looked at this case said that gave them pause Uh, where I don't know O.J. Simpson personally, I don't hang out with him, I don't particularly like him, I didn't see the Naked Gun films and all the rest, but man, he, and I mean the savage and grisly nature of these murders, you're going to do this and leave the mother of your children's body nearly decapitated in front of the house for your children to find this? And another stranger too, like, really? No other better plan. Let me wait and do this at a time when they're hanging out at the grandparents or something else. And then like right now. And this is the best way. And, you know, oh, well, children come downstairs. Oh, well, really? Anyway, I processed the whole letter. And yeah, he has children and all the rest. If I'm O.J. Simpson, you've been a world class athlete, movie star millionaire travel the world you're adored i think he carried the olympic olympic torch and all the rest of this one the heisman all of his accomplishments recognized everywhere you go people want your autograph to go from that to oh my god i'm just another guilty white woman killing Nigra like That I mean, for someone, and you've had that stature for all, he was in Roots, that was in the 70s, like for a good 20, 30 years, you have had this just extraordinary stature that even most white people don't have. And now all that's gone. You're just a wife killing a white woman killing Negro. Like I might lose my mind, too, especially coming from all. I mean, you're not just some down and out black person who nobody cares about. Anyway, you are O.J. Simpson. And yeah, I could see that totally. They said he collapsed in the office. Yes, I could see that totally. We're absolute. I don't even know what to do. I'm a totally lost person here just trying to figure it out. Like what is going on anyway? Uh, let's see he says I appreciated when he's detailing the difference where he weaves in Mark Furman's commentary about the area here Um, where he says the Westwood is gone the niggers have discovered it Torrance is considered the last white middle class society Uh, the reaction to the Bronco was different than the last white middle class society no supporters Line the highway and OJ and his helicopter entourage pass through without fanfare. Super appreciate that sort of difference. Although I do think it is important. There are, if you watch the footage, as I said, it's lots and lots and lots and lots of documentaries and everything. Uh, there are a lot of white people out there on those highways with signs and we love you choose and all the rest of it. Even when he gets to Brentwood, you can see white people there who are outside. I'm sure there were some looky as He describes them, but he at least for a few minutes had quite a few supporters, even a number of individuals who looked like they'd be classified as white, who were with him at least for a few minutes. And then all that was done. Uh, let's see. He says minutes <clears throat> minutes passed and the world waited to see if OJ Simpson would blow his brains out on live national television like the macabre nature. Like really? That's why we were tuning in. Like not to just see is he, you know, gonna be arrested, is this gonna end? Like I don't even believe is he gonna get away? <laughs> like we're watching to see him blow his brains out on television. All it, that's what I said Netflix and all the rest of it like the ghoul and the ghoulish photos in fact they described some of the journalists I forgot they described some of them I hadn't thought about it in that manner but that was the word that they used ghoulish that we'll just sit here for the next this is June 1994 so we're going to sit here for the next year and a half and gawk daily and swap rumors about who the dead people were sleeping with and all the rest of that's what we'll do for the network really for the next 25 years, but intensely for the next year and a half. And that was the exact word that was used ghoulish all of this and necrophilia, but ghoulish. Uh, Let's see that word again, the rhetoric come together, whatever that means. Uh, I was thinking, First, it was Michael Jackson. This is before Michael Jackson would have to go through this again. Uh, Mike Tyson (laughs) might be fighting again next week like the craziness. And then we got another mention. I might even need a retraction on that. I don't think you're going to get an accurate gauge of this case without understanding Rodney King all the way. Just count how many times his name and everything that happened around that is going to come up. Over and over and over and over and it's in every source that you go to to check on this. If I had a quick word about the FX series on this, uh, this is all of episode two basically is the Bronco chase. It's pretty close to what happened. The police department griping about being made to look stupid Um OJ gonna kill himself being erratic in the van it's pretty close to how this is all episode two I would just say again if you watch well if you read this book OJ is guilty if you watch the series, OJ is guilty the prosecution just yeah we'll get to all that later but yeah OJ is guilty and it's no no real wiggle room no other way all of this transpired he's guilty and that's that that's the impression I think you'd be left with through and through certainly the first two episodes of the series Uh think I can pause there. Any other comments folks need to make sure they get in before we proceed. Can I, I be heard? Sorry, Henry in Chicago. Can I be heard? Oh. Oh I sorry, that was Mr. Blue. My apologies. Mr. Blue, proceed.
2: Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Henry. Um, just a quick bit about that um, the uh, Furman comment about niggers in Westwood just a quick little bit of history Um, from living in California many friends I've just had many friends who are actual Californians and what he was talking about was Westwood is where um, UCLA is at where UCLA is located and in the 90s Westwood was a meeting point for um, non-white black people to come from and, and non-white so-called Mexican people, Latinos, whatever, to come from, say, Watts, to come from Inglewood. They had movie theater there. They had um, lots of things that were really meant for, the, uh, for UCLA and its students to enjoy. Lots of places to eat, movie theaters, things to do, little shopping malls all the shopping that you wanted to do. And what happened in the 90s was that lots of black people would descend upon it from Inglewood, Compton, Long Beach. It was one of those spots in Los Angeles and it was near the college. And what unfortunately happened was that different, because there were different people coming from Compton, Inglewood, there was also sometimes gang members that would descend upon Westwood and fights would break out. And so what happened was they kind of cleared out LAPD along with UCLA kind of cleared out and made it very difficult for young non-white black people, non-white people to be in Inglewood by stopping them if they were in groups until today. People will go there, but it's not what it used to be in the 90s where there were a lot of young people because it was sort of. Like a college town because it was close to UCLA, so you would get a mixture of people from US UCLA um, fraternity and sorority members from UCLA, along with young people from Compton, young people from Inglewood, young people from um, from all over LA, and um, and that's why he was he said, oh, the niggers had taken over Westwood because at one point that was where a lot of young non-white people went to party, hang out, because they did also have bars there, of course, being next to UCLA, multiple bars, multiple eateries. And at one point, it was very thick and um, with non-white black people. So just a little bit of um, Los Angeles history there. And um, LAPD has now made sure that that type of congregation does not happen with non-white black people next to UCLA. I'll mute my line.
4: Mm. Wow. Great. Uh, little bit of extra history on the geographic, that geographic part of uh, Southern California. Uh, our caller, I think we missed this person totally. Our caller is 6822, 6822. Did you have comments this year?
12: Hi, <laughs> excuse me. This is uh, cherry from Atlanta. Um, I just want to go back a little bit to, I think it was the second week when they were describing Nicole, and she described herself as a party animal in the court-ordered meeting with the vocational counselor, and she didn't consider um, entering the business world until her mid-30s, and I just found that interesting um, with her being a married woman with children that she's a party animal. Um, but when the when O.J. first had the chase, um, well, when he had the chase, I was a child at the time, and I didn't really... Pay attention to the case. Nor did I know um, much about O. <clears throat> excuse me, O.J. Um, but I will say that the leniency that was given to him through the whole um, uh, turning himself in through that process—it um, it just amazed me. And I heard some saying that he's not black; he's O.J. And that—that that seems to ring true for me. Um, but that's it. I'll meet my line. Thank you.
4: Much obliged. If he were not a millionaire Heisman winner. uh, whew, Man, probably would have, uh, this all would have been wrapped up as soon as he came back off the plane. He probably would have been cuffed. Maybe they would have even arrested him in Chicago. That would have been that he may have been arrested in Chicago and you know, we're just going to extradite him back to California and that'll be that we would have never heard from never heard of Mark Furman. Or this case, incidentally, I will add, if this was a white person whew, i I posted that this week, just researching, studying this case, if o j was white. this case never gets past a grand jury, so many things just on what we've read in the first two weeks in this chronology. I don't know if Mark Furman goes over that gate. I don't know if they go there thinking that he is a suspect. They all said that they went. He's not a suspect. They went to notification. I have serious doubts about that. Mark Furman was in that group. He already knew uh, that there were charges of domestic violence, all the rest of it. Uh, Mr. Dershowitz, he said, we'll put it in this perspective. Everyone in the world would have been thinking OJ is a suspect, particularly the husband generally would be thought of as a suspect, at least till we exclude him or ex-husband, especially if it's domestic violence, like, Oh yeah, he's going to be a suspect. And this is Mark from. So all of that is super suspect to me. The whole justification for going over the fence is suspect to me. If OJ is white, I'm not sure any of that happens. And that tosses out like a huge chunk uh, of evidence. If he's white, And that changes any of the justification about their behavior. They go over the gate. They don't find that other uh, glove uh, at the Bundy property or excuse me, at the uh, OJ Simpson's uh, property, Rockingham. They don't have that other glove and all the other supposed evidence, real or not blood and all that stuff from there. I don't know if this gets past uh, a grand jury uh, or not, if OJ Simpson is a white person, but. Uh, we did our three hours. Uh I don't think there's anybody that we missed totally. I'll get one person, uh let's see. Mm. Was it Henry I in Chicago? Add, just very quick. My... Uh yeah, just real quick, uh,
11: <laughs>
1: just
6: just real quick. Um you know, uh you were asking about the uh uh who you know if the if o j was guilty what was the the uh sentiment uh at that time and in the circles that i that I was in, and including like having a conversation with my dad, they didn't think he did it, but they thought that he was going to go to jail for it, you know because he's a black man involved with a white white woman, so that was what I gathered from from that whole case. That'll be my line
4: hmm. definitely thought he was going to jail uh i was <laughs> Surprised about that because I didn't follow the trial. In there, I know Thomas New York is there, but it was like, I'm we've never had like overflowing commentary for the book club, maybe for medical apartheid, but that generally doesn't happen. So we'll slow down and allow more chit chat time for next week since we can all have thoughts about this and study as we go. Uh, I will only say, as we uh, conclude, I saw one report this week. They said that, and this was way back then, I'm not talking about now. At this uh, 94, 95, or I guess 95, they said by the time they got to the verdict, the people who were actually watching the trial daily on court TV or whatever else, those people were substantially more likely to think he's going to be exonerated, not guilty the people who did not watch the trial, they just read the newspaper or whatever they heard, you know, other people filtering out the day's events. Those people were much more likely to think he was going to be guilty and were much more surprised, uh, by the verdict, I guess outraged if they weren't happy with it and pleasantly surprised either way. But I thought that was very important. I didn't watch the trial and I was surprised by the time we got to the end, having done the research now, (laughs) Anyway, so we'll pick up next week. He's been arrested and (laughs) chapter six. We'll be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism uh, and the Rona updates and all the rest of it. Compensatory call in on Saturday. Much obliged for everyone participating. Research. We haven't got to Johnny Cochran yet. Man, the best, the good stuff isn't even here yet. Uh, Research Court TV. That 25 part series is amazing. Much better than anything on Netflix. If you want to check it out, if you're really young, you can get to see all this that 25, but it's way better than what's on FX. If you watch that, then watch the FX series and see what you think. We'll be here tomorrow. Hope it was worthy of your Thursday evening. Uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Man, you do not want to be falsely accused of something, and then you aren't in your right mind to even be able to think, Man, I got an alibi. I was doing X and X and X, and with here and da 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 da. And Oh, man, be sober. Need to be thinking clearly with all the problems we face. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled every time we are in a vehicle driver or passenger. I still submit. Let's hunker down. Uh, Folks being chased with chainsaws uh, out in the wilderness here of the U.S. Uh, No reason to be taking chances with our safety. Uh, If you got to go out, be very alert. Uh, If it looks like someone is being loud, rowdy, could be a hostile situation. All this is over. We're not taking unnecessary risks with our health and safety in 2020 or 2021. Uh, If you got to go out, as I said, we are sober. We are buckled. If you are driving, you are not on the cell phone. Uh we need all of our attention to be aware of what's happening around us and we want to be very alert to you in trying to do everything that we can to minimize contact with the Mark Furmans, Amber Geigers of the known universe. Uh just the little things, being buckled, being sober, not being on the phone, all that little stuff. Incidentally they can still find you and rip your driver's license and you know, plant whatever they want on you. So just trying to do the small things. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately Cow signing out thanks all for tuning in
8: nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim your brother problem. you're a victim Man, I'm up. a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up The man has programmed my condition. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. (laughs)